optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now we're just in a broken time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to a very exciting episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. At least I hope it will be, because it was for me. Of course, every episode, it is my job to deconstruct world-class performers, whether they're in entertainment, military, chess, sports, or otherwise. How do they do what they do? What are their routines? What were their influences? Favorite books? What do they do for exercise? What is their favorite cereal, if it comes down to that, et cetera, et cetera. And this particular episode features Jamie Foxx. Jamie Foxx is the most consummate performer and entertainer I have ever met, and I've met a lot of people. He blew my mind. Uh, we spent two and a half hours together in his studio at his home. He is an Academy Award-winning actor, Grammy Award-winning musician, and of course, he cut his teeth as a famous stand-up and improv comedian. He can do it all. And in our conversation, which goes all over the place, we do cover it all, and that includes him playing live music, just to off the cuff, it includes impersonations, Oprah, Mike Tyson, Kermit the Frog, Bill Cosby, Clinton, Reagan, Sammy Davis Jr., Ray Charles, and dozens more. Morgan Freeman, it goes on and on. But he also talks about his origin stories. So how did he, for instance, match a $1 million party thrown by 
Puff Daddy with $400 in LA? How did he go about doing that? How did he build up his fan base? What was it like to bomb in the beginning? That's B-O-M-B, not B-A-L-M, even though I said it that way. The connections initially, how did he connect with Kanye? How did he connect with Jay-Z, Pharrell, etc.? And uh, we get into a lot of nitty gritty. We talk about hard times. We talk about what he learned from his grandmother, the skills he developed as a kid, what he uh, uses as, as far as parenting style with his own kids. We go really deep and all over the place. Uh, I, I was so excited and nervous at the same time in this interview. It was one of those times, and for those of you who have done interviews, you'll know the feeling where the stuff that's coming out is so good, you compulsively check the audio equipment to make sure that you're getting it. So uh, I hope to provide some bonus material on top of this, and we've had that before, for instance, where Arnold Schwarzenegger has answered some of your questions after the interview. And uh, to get any of that, you will need to sign up for the newsletter. So just go to fourhourworkweek.com forward slash Friday. That is uh, 4hourworkweek.com, all spelled out, forward slash Friday, and that'll get you the five bullet Fridays, which is just a short bullet list of all the cool things that I've managed to find in a given week, and I send those out on Fridays. So sign up for that, and you might get some goodies related to this episode. So check out Jamie on Twitter, at I am Jamie Fox, F-O-X-X. And for all of the notes, all of the links, the resources, and so on from this episode. As always, you can find it at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast with all the other episodes. And that all having been said, holy shit, put on a seatbelt, have a cup of coffee, and please enjoy the incredible Jamie Fox. Jamie, welcome to the show. Man, thanks, buddy. I'm so excited to be here. I'm, I'm uh, admiring your setup here. This crazy, is crazy, right? This is where the magic happens. To be honest with you, a lot of magic happens here. I mean, for for the people that are listening, uh, we are actually in my studio, uh, my home studio. Now, you know, studios. We're talking about tech world. Studios, because of the tech world, uh, a lot of them dissipate dissipated in closed doors. Because uh, if you think about when LMFAO came around, they didn't need studios. They did all of their music on a laptop, right? Flying from here to Germany or whatever like that, and just dumped it on to uh, and, and just pressed up the C- CD or the iTunes. So studios have almost become obsolete. But there's something very interesting about this studio. First, just for people that are listening, this studio, and I'll describe it. It's you know, it's sort of plush. There's, the carpet is great. We're gonna sit next to a grand piano. Uh, you hear the grand piano, which a lot of places. So we keep a grand piano around just to make sure that we don't lose, you know, we don't get too techy. But what's interesting about it is it's actually electric, but it's an electric grand piano. So we still have the wood to give you that warm sound, uh, which, you know, we, I think it makes a lot of sense because as music starts to progress, uh, because of the way we record now, sometimes you lose a little bit of the heart of it. So I think within the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, it'll be, you know, this type of music, the real sound will, you know, remain. Right. If that makes sense. Now, the studio, when I first got the house, looked like a, a old porn set. <laughs> it had a, <laughs> it had like an old basement carpet and a couch and like a Metallica, uh, Metallica uh, poster. And I was like, what would I do with this? Because I needed a place to, to work and, and do music. 
What's interesting now, I, I got a guy to change the whole place over, and as you can see, we'll take pictures and show it for, for you for you guys that are listening. But they did a very good job in it. But if you look over here, this is where we do the recording. There's a, there's a booth, which is normal, but also the recording on both sides. We're able to do animation. We're able to do uh, if we want to do ADR for movies. Um, what is ADR? ADR is like when you um, like when we're doing a movie, but we're recording the the, the movie outside. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of noise. Are oh, you doing pickup audio? So we'll do pickup audio. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, and so and and most any actor or actress will tell you ADR is the worst thing in the world to do. So to be able to have here have it here, I could do my ADR here. I could do my animation here and things like that. And so just the now the the studio itself, the actual brains of the studio, it's a old hard drive and the reason i kept that old hard drive i used to have a smaller studio in a smaller house but when i had that small studio i wasn't in music i built the studio in my smaller house because i wanted to get in music but i was from comedy and from acting and things like that but what i would do is i would throw parties and i would invite musical people over uh, at the party, like, but and when they would come over, like if I had Puff or or Snoop or back at that time John B or or Brian McKnight, I would say, hey man, you know I'm trying to get into music. Would you leave me some music in my studio? So people would leave me like 16 bars, 24 bars. Because I mean, they would they would record something while yeah, they were in the studio. They would record. We'd have the party going. I say, hey man, let's go in the back. You know, while we're drinking and whatever like that, and go and I say, hey man, just leave me a little something because I was trying to get into uh, to music. And then I met this kid uh, uh, named Breon Prescott. Basketball, we played basketball and all this kind of stuff. Pick up basketball games, and he said, "Hey man, why don't you ever do music?" I said, "Man, I'm trying to get into that shit, man. I just, you know, I don't know how to get into it." And then one day he, I throw this big party, and uh, it was a, 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 the party was was crazy because as I di digress a little bit, I would follow. Puffy Combs around back in the day when it was just like Puff and J-Lo and uh, and back at that time no one could get into his parties but the reason he would let me in because I would carry a camera with me everywhere I go but it was back in the day day like you know the big Canon cameras wait he would let you in because you carried a camera yeah because at that time I wasn't Jamie Foxx I was just Jamie Foxx <laughs> and uh, uh, so I couldn't get into all the parties because Puff was so big like he come to LA we couldn't even get in our own clubs Right. but I popped I, I, I took a town car everywhere he went jumped out of the town car one day and said yo Puff can I record now at that point he didn't know you at all he, he knew did. me he knew me the, the kid that was on the living color or whatever like right, that but right, right. it wasn't elevated right and plus he was having parties that were like huge like nobody's getting it and so they was he saw me with the camera he's like yo let him through and it was back in the day it was like the big canon camera with the light and i had to change the battery it wasn't like how today you just got your your, you phone, know, your, your phone in your pocket no i had i had production <laughs> but uh i would follow him around and then one day we had this this party in philly that i, I recorded for him and he said yo your money you know how much this party costs as well said it costs a million dollars for this party i said you paid a million dollars for a party he was like yeah that's how we i told paul if i challenged him i said i'll throw you a party at my house in LA, which is way smaller than this situation, but I'll spend maybe $400, and it will rival this party. Not in the scale of it, but in the type of people that are there. And he was he was a little upset. You know, Puff is a, you know, he, he always likes to win. He's a competitive you know, guy. He's a competitive guy. He said, yo, play, play, you, you must out your motherfucking mind, playboy. You better understand the essence of this party. I was like, all right, I, I get it. <laughs> and uh, he actually came to uh, LA a few weeks later. And it was a Saturday. He said, yo, Playboy, make that shit happen. So he calls me like 9 in the morning, right? For that night? For, no, in the morning. For, he just right. said, for the, same for the day. day. For the day. <laughs> I said, no problem. So I go into my cell phones, 
call I have a I have a list of people uh that since I f- first came to LA the way I got into uh um um knowing everybody I was the first I was the first social media guy without social media mm-hmm. I would go do a stand up comedy routine at a club if they liked the routine, I had cue cards back in the day and would have people sign cue cards, sign the name. Did you like the set? Give me your pager number. I will text you and let you know where I would be you were from ahead time of the curve. to time. Yeah, I wish so they were like index cards. So index cards. So yeah. a box. And I had these. You gotta get rid of this fly, man. <laughs> Stop it for a second. <laughs> Uh, all right, so we're picking back up. I just have to. We took a fly break. Yeah, so it was a I fly. Just have to, assault I, just have, I just have to admire this because the studio is, what would you say, maybe like 30, 30 by 15 feet on the floor and then another 15 feet tall. And you said, I'm going to stop and get this fly. Yeah, I saw the fly. fly Salted this, my man. This is a lot of space. So, yeah. And it took you about seven seconds to track yeah, this fly down and kill it. I was very impressed. We got to get shit done in here. We don't have time. <laughs> so, so the cue cards. So, so, what, so I would get cue cards. And, and, and you know, like I said, I would send it. You know, I had a list of about 800 people. I had 600 women because women at that time, this is like around 90, 91, women at that time would love to go to comedy clubs. So it was all the pretty girls because pretty girls like to laugh. You know, about eight, nine girls together and jamie you're so crazy I'm fine. whatever <laughs> and so uh i had 800 signatures 200 guys because they wanted to be where the girls were so i would take that list and also say okay well now i'm having a party here 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 whatever whatever if you want to come by so that same list along with the other people that i met as i as i started to grow in the business i text and said i'm throwing a party for puff and this one puff had uh, we ain't going nowhere was out. And it was bla- It was popping. I mean, even the L.A. dudes was like, man, we don't want to fuck with this New York dude, but this shit is so, the song is so hot. So I text. I said, listen, I'm, I'm Puff is coming. And the people that I text were only cool people, like no guys that'll be hating. You know, uh, the girls are pretty, uh, uh, not slutty, but not not too tight. Right. You know what I mean? It was, it was just, it was just really, it was, um, it was, um, it was, um, um. and so I hit him at 12 noon. I said, yo, where you at? We're at a fevered pitch. It's going off over here in my little house. And when he gets there, his mind is blown. And, you know, he shows up with the entourage that, you know, he, he was like, Gatsby. Right. And he walked in, he says, oh, that's the girl from that show. And that's the girl on this. And I, I said, yeah, Puff, we. We all live out here, you know, so all the people you see in Hollywood, I, I know they're my friend. And so he's like, oh, shit. So the party's incredible. We're playing his music through my little sound speakers. Everybody's really toasting him. And I said, Puff, the people that are here are different. And this, oh, what the fuck? It's another fly. Hold on, stay right there. Good night. <laughs> two for two. Two for two. <laughs> <laughs> so 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 he's he's admiring that the, it's it's crazy, and um and and everybody's in tune with him. And I explained to him. I said, Puff, let me explain to you who you are. I said, these are the people who not only live in L.A. but I think I've found the right set of people who appreciate the art as well, because what you do musically and what you're doing on the artistic side is blowing our minds as well. And I said. Therefore, look at the table. I only spent $400 on the table. There's Kentucky Fried Chicken. I just put it in a nice bowl. Uh, there's cola. I just put them in pitchers. I said, so no more than $400, but 
people to hear. I said, because here's the thing. A fitted baseball cap, New York fitted, is $58 maybe retail. I said, but puff on your hat, on your head is priceless. We just want to be around this fly shit, right? So we party and Puff is partying, and there's a dude standing uh, next, uh, like, on the wall. No one's talking to him. He got a little green jump jacket on. Guess who it was? It was Jay-Z. Nobody knew who he was. <laughs> Jay-Z. I said, yeah, I know that dude. Uh, Missy Yellett has one room. Puff has the other room. Then I go to my garage to grab some other drinks, and I see this tall dude and this little dude, and, and they're like, the little guy goes, yo, B, it's like this all the time. I say, yeah, what do you mean? You know, the girls and, and karaoke. And I say, yeah, yeah, man, who are you? Oh, we're the Neptunes. My name is Pharrell. I say, yeah, man, I heard of you. Yeah, man, I like your shit. So that's how long ago this was. Amazing. So here's how I make the music play, though. So as Puff is there, I get people to leave me different bits of music or whatever because I'm trying to get into the music thing. So I turned that into a show, in a sense, to where I would just have different people I would toast and try to, you know, get my music on. So one day, my boy Breon brings in this kid. He has a backpack on. His jaw's a little busted. His name is Kanye West. <laughs> and I say, yo, yo, who's, who's that? They say, yo, that's a new kid, Kanye West. He coming on. I said, really? What do he do? So he rap. I said, well, shit, he got to perform that shit because everybody that comes to, this, to my house, they got to perform. So I said, yo, man, they say you the shit. And he was really quiet, you know. I said, man, let me hear you rap. You need your beats or whatever? He said, I don't need no beat. Freestyle. Blew every, I mean, chopped everybody's heads up. Just amazing. I said, dude, I don't know where you come from, but you are going to be one of the biggest stars ever. And he said, I actually have a song for you. I said, moi? <laughs> me, a song? Like, what you mean? He said, I got this song. He says, I want to record it. I said, well, you happen to be in luck because I got a studio in the back. So we go in the back. And my studio at that time, I called it the Porsche. It was a lot smaller than this. It was really like nif- It was like a... a it was like a Learjet. It was compact. It was compact. The sound was toasty. I had uh, engineers from all over the, the, the city dial it in so that when real artists come, they don't think that, oh, this is just comedian fucking around. Some real shit. So we go in and, 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 and uh, Kanye, you know, quiet. But, but at the same time, he knew what he wanted. He says, okay, the song goes like this. She says she wants some Marvin Gaye, some Luther Vandross, a little. I said, I got it. And I started going, she says she wants some Marvin Gaye. And he said, what the fuck are you doing? I said, well, see, young man, you don't know nothing about R&B. See, I'm an R&B motherfucker. See, I, I got to give him the shit. You know, I got to put the shit on it. And he goes really politely. He says, hits the, the button. He says, uh, don't do that. <laughs> I said, but you don't know what you're talking about, brother. Uh, that ain't how the song go. You got to sing it this way. So in my mind, I'm thinking, you know what? I'm going to sing the shit. The song is whack. It's not going to make it. Because I'm thinking old school R&B. But he was teaching me the simplicity of hip hop, which I didn't know. I was like, man, what? Cool guy. Great rapper. I don't think it's going to happen for him. So I go off and do a bad movie. And when I come back, my boy says, remember that song you said was whack? I said, yes. Yeah, number one in the country. You, Kanye, and Twister. Kanye's first record. And it was actually Twister's record. I said, oh, shit. So I'm at a club. He said, you don't believe me? I said, no, I'm, we're in Miami. He, they played it. Everybody ran to the dance floor. I grabbed the mic, said, that's me, that's, that's, that's my song, I'm, I'm on that, you know. And so the music, that's how I got into the music. Now, the reason the story is significant is because the same brains that we use, that same hard drive, 
that we use, I brought it to this studio. Oh, no so that hard drive is, is magical because we also did, just to give you a history on the, on the music, Breon found that song, Slow Jams. It went number one. And then as we started getting into music, there was a song that Breon brought in, and he would play these. Breon would call me. Like he said, you want to be in the music business? It's like, you know, 2 or 3 in the morning. He called me and says, you want to be in the music business? I said, yeah. He said, don't wake your ass up. I said, what? He said, I got this song you got to hear. So I drove all the way from my house in the valley to this, to this, uh, to this, to this little studio. He says, so you ready, motherfucker? Are you ready? And Breon always says everything three times. Are you ready, motherfucker? Are you ready? Are you ready? I said, yeah, yeah, man, play the shit. So he plays it. And the song was, blame it on the goose. Got you feeling loose. Blame it on the, I, 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 I stopped it. I said, listen. First of all, please tell me that's my song. He said, yeah, it's your song, but you got to record it right now because a lot of people are listening to this song and they don't know if it's a hit or not. He said, but I know it's a hit. We did Blame It On The Alcohol that night. I sung it exactly like the record, which goes way in contrast to my R&B roots because it was out of tune and everything like that. But we wanted to sing it exactly like the demo so we wouldn't lose the essence of it. I don't want to be like, blame it on the alcohol, you know, some corny shit. <laughs> so we did that. And then we went from every, the way we broke that record is that we went from every club. We went to the strip clubs first. Went to the strip clubs? Strip club. We went, on, we, went, we did an East Coast run. So we were going to break the record in the East Coast. So we went to the strip. We went to New York. Um, my man Pecos took us around. Uh, and I would go into the club and use my comedic, you know, vernacular to get the song off. I said, fellas, you ever been... Uh, at the club, you meet a girl, you've been drinking, you think she looked like Halle Berry, you get her back home, she looks like Halle Scary, you know what you got to do? Blame it on the goose, guys feeling loose, blame it on the ah, 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 stop the record. Ladies, you ever meet a guy, you get back to the house with him and you've been drinking too much and you say, I usually don't do this, but you do it anyway, you got to blame it on the ah, 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 ah. <laughs> So we took that and we went all the way down from New York all the way down to Miami. This is like 2008. And then the song took off. And so, long story longer, Blame It On Alcohol was done here. Slow Jams was done here. So this studio has that that essence to it that you just, you don't throw that away. And just the building itself, Natasha Bedingfield's been here. She's cut. Kelly Rowland's been here. She's cut. The Game has been here. He's cut right here on this floor. And I'm sure on the, uh, for you guys listening, I'm pointing to the floor, to the carpet. A young man by the name of Ed Shearing slept on this carpet for like six weeks uh, trying to get his music career going. Uh, he came from over from London. He heard about a, a live show that I do in L.A. So I really want to uh, do your live show if it's possible, uh, you know, because I have some music that I look like. And here this kid with this red hair. I'm like, man, you do my live show? And it's all it's mostly black, you know what I'm saying? But it's really like music people, like really hardcore music people. They're very finicky. You know, people that have played for Stevie Wonder. People will come there to... I mean, I had Miranda Lambert one night. I had Stevie Wonder on stage. I had Babyface. I said, so this is the real shit you're talking about. You know, you can come here. I don't care about the London and the accent. <laughs> you got to really come with it. So I, I think I'll be okay. I was all right. So I take it to my live night. 800 people there. People playing. Black folks sweating and just getting it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, people singing and, you know, they would, they would tear American Idol up, you know? So, and these people don't necessarily, hasn't, haven't necessarily made it. So all of a sudden, Ed Sheeran gets up with a ukulele, <laughs> walks by, out onto the stage, <laughs> and the brother that was next to me was like, yo, Fox, man, who the fuck is this dude right here, man, with the red hair and shit and the fucking ukulele? 
I said, man, his name is Ed Sharon. Let's see what he does. Within 12 minutes, he got a standing ovation. Wow. From that crowd. And I said, bro, you're on your way. So this studio has, a, a, like I said, a lot of history, and it has that magic to it as well. The mojo. Yeah. Now, you, uh, you mentioned getting into music, but it seems like, from what I've read of you, that music in some ways came first. Music did. Music did. My, when I was a kid, my grandmother uh, made sure that I took piano lessons. And, you know, that's tough for a little boy in Texas, you know, playing Fairy Lease and Chopin and Mozart. And we're not talking about Houston or... No, we're talking Terrell, Texas. And I love my city. My city was dope because it was only 12,000 people. So it was like literally like 12 or 15 families. So we all knew each other. But, you know, for a little boy playing at that time, you know, the kids didn't understand. Yo, man, why are you doing that? And my, my grandma want me to do this, you know. And so I would sometimes I would be belligerent and be like, why do you want me to do this? She says, the reason I want you to learn classical piano is because I want you to be able to go across the tracks and play your music. For people listening, across the tracks or on the other side of the tracks for a southern city was the tracks in a southern city separates the city. One side is black, the other side is white. So in our city, the south side, the south side of town was where all the black folk live. The north side of town was where the white folks live. So she says, I want you to be able to go on the white side of town and play classical music. So she taught me how to play classical piano um, a lady by the name of Lenita Hodge taught me how to play classical piano. And I literally would go on the other side of the tracks and, you know, and, and start playing for like wine and cheese parties and things like that. But my grandmother took it a step further, too, because she was able to see the future. Uh, here's a lady with an eighth grade education. She had her own business for 30 years. She had her own uh, nursery school business. She says, when I say across the tracks, I don't just mean in Terrell and those people over there. I mean the metaphoric. Like across the track, like meaning everywhere in the world. So you, she said, because music connects you to the to to the whole world. So in doing that, I would connect with people on the other side of the tracks. Who, you know, in a southern city, and Terrell, you know, we were a little we were a little behind the curve when it came to race relations. Let's just say it that way. Without you know, I don't want to demonize my 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 hometown, but there was there was that who's a little black kid. And my grandmother would be like, don't, you know, play. Do your thing. And when I would play, you know, a lot of that broke up, broke up, you know, broke up. I remember even, like, being armed with just my music in sort of that racial setting and some, sometimes. Like, there was a, a time when there was a Christmas party. Were these paid gigs? Yeah, these- I make like, man, I get like $10, $15. You know what I'm saying? At that time, it was a lot of money. And I played for the church. So playing for the church, I would make like uh, $75 a week. So if you count that up, that's like 300 a month. You know, that's real money. That's real money at 13, 14. My grandmother would take the money, though, and put it, you know, and give me this money. So, Grandma, what are you doing with my money? Shit, you ain't, getting, you ain't paying no rent. You ain't give me this money. <laughs> so, but I remember at that time being armed with just my music, and uh, there was a Christmas party that I was supposed to play for, myself and my best friend who was 17. I was 16 at the time. And so here was a little bit of the, the racial misunderstanding, shall we say. I went to play for the guys Christmas time. Maybe it's like December 17th. And we show up. There's two little black kids on the white side of town. And uh, when he opens his door and he sees these two little black kids, uh, he says, what's going on here? I said, well, I'm, I'm here to play uh, for your Christmas party. Sir. Then why are two of you here at the same time? I said, well, <clears throat> I don't have a license. He, you know, he drove me. 
uh, is there a problem? Yeah, there's a problem. I can't have two niggers in my house at the same time. And I was like, ah, well, you know, and I've been sort of used to the racial misunderstandings. And I said, well, is there any way he could wait outside or wait? And he can't wait on the street. Starts at 630. Now, you got to make, make your mind up now. So I, I said, I told my boy, I said, let's just come get me at 830, which was pretty late, you know, for kids at that time, you know. Uh, so I go in. He says, where's your tuxedo? I said, well, he didn't tell me to have a tuxedo. So we go into this room, which looks like a bedroom. And I'm looking like, why the fuck does he have clothes hanging up in his bedroom? But it was a walk-in closet. I never <laughs> seen no shit like that. I'm like, I don't know. We make a split-level condo out of this shit. So he gives me a Brooks Brothers jacket that had the patches on the elbows. I'm like, oh, shit, highfalutin. So now I'm really playing. You know what I'm getting? But as I'm playing, uh, they were doing, uh, the grown-ups there were doing uh racially misunderstanding jokes. I'll say it like that. <laughs> and my grandmother taught me something at that time. She said, uh, when you're in a setting like that, uh, there's a word I want you to remember. It's called furniture. I said, what's that? She said, you're part of the furniture. So you don't comment on what's being said. You play. That's what you're there for. And you let these people enjoy their. And the lady at the house felt bad. She said, I just want to apologize to you for what they're saying. I said, no problem. She said, can you sing something for us? And I was like, sure. I could sing something for us. And this was the song that I sung. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire Jack Frost nipping at your nose Yuletide carols being sung and folks dressed up like Eskimos. <laughs> Everybody. Anyway, so as I'm singing, I remember watching those white guys, older men, some of them faculty at my school, that had just said something, you know, probably not, I don't think it was that they meant harm, harm, but it was. They'd have to, re they'd have to resign today. Yeah. And they look and they go, they they immediately change. It's said, wow, man, that's good. You know any other songs? And I sat and I did about maybe like a six-song set. And I saw what my grandmother talked about. That music cracked them in half. They saw a different me. And then afterwards, he gave me 100 bucks. And I'm like, shit, call me nigga every day. I got $100. I'm rich. And what was interesting was I went to give him the jacket back. He's like, no, I, don't, I, I can't wear the jacket. So it was still a little bit of residue left over. But I saw what the music did. And I remember when my, when my boy showed back up, I said, listen, it was a cool gig. We got paid. I said, but I got to get out of here. I said, because I'm too smart for this. Uh, I need to go elsewhere. And I did. I changed my major. Well, I changed the college that I was going to go to. I was going to go to another college in Texas and study music. Instead, I came to California, San Diego, to study music. Uh, at International University. And what was interesting about that was is that being in Texas, it was black, whites, and Mexicans. When I got to International University, it was 81 different countries represented at that school, all connected by music and other things, music and sports. Uh, and the music, the music arena at that time was high-end, strict child prodigies from Japan, child prodigies from China. I had a Russian uh, uh, music teacher and I has a Yugoslavia music theory teacher. So it was 
it was really across the tracks. But uh, because of that, because of Estelle Talley and Mark Talley, you know, picking me up every uh, weekend to go play music, um, man, I was, it, it set me on a, like I said, a, a crazy, wonderful journey. And uh, uh, so the music was first, you know, and um, my college was interesting. I didn't know anything about Jewish Palestinian, I had no idea. I, I was at the student center and there was this argument going on. You know, so what, what, are, what are you arguing about? Oh, my brother, my brother, my friend. They're talking about the Gaza Strip. I said, the fuck is that? <laughs> and they said, no, the Jewish, the occupation, the this, the that. And I had a, I, I got a quick, I got a quick uh, history lesson on, on that. I got a quick history lesson on people from Argentina. Or I would see a person who looked black, and I'd be like, "Hey, what's up, brother?" And I'd be like, "Oh shit, where are you from?" Oh, so I'm from Paris. I was like, what "The fuck, they got black people." So <laughs> that music gave me not only an opportunity to share, but opportunity to be educated by other people because we studied Texas history, and in studying Texas history is interesting. Like if you study Texas history, if it didn't happen in Texas, it didn't happen. <laughs> so when you look at like like this is just a sidebar, but when you think about politics and what people know and don't know in politics and what they know about across the sea or what they know about even on the next block or what they know about what's different in Texas from New York. The reason that politics is so interesting is because the people don't necessarily have educations of other people, which is why I think that once we start opening up a little more and traveling a little more, because what is it less than how many percent Less or well, less than five percent of Americans have passports and things. It's like a small that. number, yeah. So, so anyway, that music, like I said, took me, took me everywhere. What other your your grandmother seems like a very wise woman, and uh, I've heard you describe her, and I might be, par- I'm sure I'm par- paraphrasing yeah. this, but that she she was the bow or had the bow, and you oh, were yeah. the arrow, and she yeah. pointed you in different directions. I'm wondering what other, like you are the furniture, right? I mean, when to speak, when not to speak. What other lessons did you learn from your grandmother? My grandmother taught me confidence as well. My grandmother was a very confident person and uh, very smart. Just, how would you say, just naturally intelligent. She was a a, 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 a Taurus. You know what I'm saying? Natural. It's like it wasn't something that was super educated or anything like, like that. An, but an she innate. just had a natural. I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll give you a, a, a hint of my grandmother. I'm 10 years old, maybe. I think I'm in the fifth grade, 76, President Carter. The preacher started preaching about homosexuality. Now, I don't know what it is. I'm you know, 10 or 8 or whatever. So he's saying, God made Adam and Eve. God didn't make Adam and Steve. Right? <laughs> so people like, you know, it's Southern. It's Texas. Amen. My grandmother stood up and said, you stop that. And the whole church stopped. What's that, Miss Taylor? You stopped that. Now, her words, what she said next was very interesting. Let me tell you something. I've had this nursery school for 30 years, and I want to let all y'all know that God makes sissies too. And the whole place went, what? She said, these little boys that I've watched since they could walk, they, they, play, by, they play by different music. And you stop that because you're making it hard for them to navigate. Sits down. He goes to another subject. Eventually, he leaves the church. But I found that very interesting. At that time, I didn't know what that meant. 
until I got to be about 18. I was like, Man, what, you know, what was you talking about? She says, yeah, it's true. She says, you know, I, I've had this nursery school. I, I see the difference in the kids. And so, therefore, I would have these kids come to me after they graduated from high school, gone to college, or tried to have a family, although they, had, they were living with this. So she was the type of woman who had natural intelligence. I said, well, Granny, well, what does it say about religion? Doesn't it say that it's, that it's wrong? You know, being a you know, kid from Texas, it's a natural question. She says, you know, when I think about it, she said, you have to open up the umbrella of religion. I said, what do you mean? She said, if you only open up the umbrella halfway, only a few people can stand under it. She said, you have to open the umbrella all the way through so God's children can stand under it because no one here did not get made by anybody else or anything else but God. So that was my grandmother, you know. It seems very, uh, the, the move in church, man, it's a very bold move, very courageous very move. Very bold, very bold. But my grandmother raised those people in church. See, I was adopted, you know, at seven months, so she was much older. So all of the kids that were there, were the, and it was, like I said, it was only a few families that lived in Terrell. So all of the kids that grew up, or all of the grown-ups that were there, she... She was the matriarch. She, she, because during, during the year, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a school. You know what I'm saying? But then during the summer, you drop your kids off at my, at my grandmother's house and just let them keep them. So she was very uh, powerful in that sense. And then when I did finally make it, it was wonderful to tell my grandmother, come live with me. So my grandmother was living with me. So we go to the clubs. You know, my grandmother was like, she had to be 83 at the time. She would go to the clubs, we hang out. You know what I'm saying? She this did, is in L.A. This is in L.A. Uh, I had a little apartment, split-level condo. Remember when that was hype? The split-level condo. So I had a loft. Oh, yeah, Ricardo, he's only 19. He doesn't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but I had a loft, and we were living in that loft, and then we eventually rented a house. And me and my grandma, and I didn't know I was a mama's boy. Like, we go to the parties, come back, we have an after party at the crib, and then one of my homies came and said, yo, uh, yo, Fox, uh, it's an older lady out here uh, in the in the front room. I said, yeah, that's my grandmother. What's up? Oh, uh, yeah, it's cool. I said, yeah. And then you hear a bottle of champagne pop. What we doing? <laughs> we getting it or what? You know, so uh, <laughs> she was uh, she was amazing, man. And so, you know, my grandmother, you know, we party, hang, have a good time. She was 83 years old. And then the big thing was, it's like, Granny, you know, it's Christmas time. Why don't we do something we ain't never done? You know, you, you, your son making a little money. Why don't we go to Hawaii for Christmas? Because I got some friends from Hawaii well, what? Yeah, well, let's get it going. Gas up the plane, right? So we uh fly to Hawaii one year, and I, it was just amazing to be able to show my grandmother another side of the world. It even made the papers in Terrell, Texas, Estelle Talley, uh, on her way to Hawaii. You know, and I remember, <laughs> and you know, just a fun, just a fun time. I remember um we we're having a good time. We're going everywhere, and she had a boyfriend at the same time. It was eighty three too. And he was on the, you know, he was on the land side. And so, so it was like December 23rd and we, uh, we called her boyfriend just so they could talk. So she's on the phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Having a good time. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. Weather's nice. Mm-hmm. Sunny. Oh, food is good. I got my own seasonings though. Mm-hmm. Real nice. Well, I tell you what, look, I'm going to go, but let me tell you something. Don't let me come back there and uh, catch you with no young girls. You understand? Because I don't play that. Don't let me catch you with no young girls. You hear me? <laughs> so she hangs up. You know, it's like three or four families there. We're having like a little Christmas party. And we all go, Granny, what? When you said the young girls, what are you talking about? You know, 60, 65. You know, I don't want to mess with no 65. 
She said, shit, I'm 83. You know, so I can't handle a 65-year-old woman all in my shit. So she was just a great person, tough girl. Uh, I remember there was some situations where I did make it and some people in my family felt like I should give them all of, the, all of my money. Mm. This lady walks in and we're in my apartment. She comes in and says, my rich cousin. I didn't even recognize because I, you know, I had I only seen it maybe once or twice growing up. So anyway, it gets around to it. She says, I need $10,000 for a kidney. I'm like, who's kidney? Well, I need kidney surgery or something like that. So if you give me the cash, I could take it and get the, I said, well, why don't you, if it's a situation of medical, I I know some doctors, maybe they can help you. Oh, I would prefer the (laughs) $10,000. I said, well, you okay, I'll, I'll hit you. And I didn't call back. I was like, so that became a problem for her. And she called me one day and left on the answer machine. Young fella, it's the last time you seen an answer machine. So I'm checking my answer machine, and she leaves a scathing message. Well, you know what? I didn't get the money from you. And that's fine, because you're not part of this family anyway. You was adopted. Nobody wanted you anyway. This is what this lady is saying to me. Brutal. I said, like, what the hell? Yeah. So I let my grandmother hear, let me run that back. Played it. Mm-hmm. What's that number? And she called, and I I remember listening. Now I'm grown, you know. I'm I'm 22, so I'm grown, and I hear how she stuck up for me. She said, "Let me explain something to you, boy." And I could hear. I got that boy when he was seven months old. I said, and everybody wanted him. I wanted him. Uh, everybody, you know. I said, and he may not be blood, but he's our family. And just it was just incredible. Incredible thing. My grandmother was absolutely amazing. I think you need people like that. And when you talk about that bow, that's what that's my reference to to raising kids. And I got my own kids now. Is that when you raise your kids, you are the bow and arrow. You're the bow. They're the arrow. And you just try to aim them in the best direction that you can. And hopefully uh, your aim isn't too off. And uh, that's what she did for me. And then, uh, you know, she watched my whole career uh, all the way up until getting nominated for an Oscar where all of the things that she taught me came into play. When we did uh, uh, Ray Charles, that was an opportunity to play the piano, to be funny, to do an impersonation. And all these things is what my grandmother championed. So when we, when we embarked upon that film, I was like, oh, man, Granny was right. This is taking me on the other side of the tracks. And when we got in... Even when I got a chance to meet Ray Charles, which, you know, that's my grandmother's era, you know. Uh, and she didn't get a chance to meet him because at the time she was, you know, she couldn't move bedridden a little bit. But uh, being around older people, you know, I understood that muscle, too, because I was always the young kid with the old parents. So meeting Ray Charles was like seeing my grandfather or seeing one of my uncles. And when I met Ray and we were trying to do Ray Charles the movie. And Taylor Hackford, who was the director, and he said, you know, I've, I've been wanting to do this movie for 25 years. I'm glad you came along because it's the right time. And I remember meeting Ray Charles, walking down his studio, you know, clean, you know. Looked like, almost like he could see, you know. And I said, Mr. Charles, you know, just trying to do the best I can to, you know, to do uh, to do your m- movie, your biop. He said, hey, you know what, uh, it, look, it, it, if you could play the blues, man, shit, you could do anything, man. I said, what do you mean? He said, hey, can you play the blues? Shit, that's what I'm asking. I said, well, I guess so. Then come on. And we go and we sit down. And all of the hard work that my grandmother put in, 
all of the days my grandfather drove me to piano lessons. Here I am sitting with a legend, and we were like, and I was like playing the blues with Ray Charles. And as we're playing, I'm like, I'm on cloud nine. Then he moved into the, some intricate stuff like Thelonious Monk and I was like oh shit I gotta catch up and I hit a wrong note and he stopped because his ears are very sensitive hey, now, now why the hell would you do that I said what is that hey, why you hit the note like that that's a wrong note man shit I said well I, 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 I'm sorry Mr. <laughs> Mr. Charles I just said he said hey, let, me, hey, let me tell you something buddy. Hey, the notes are right underneath your fingers baby you just gotta take the time out to play the right notes that's life so that was a lesson that the notes are right underneath your fingers. So metaphorically. So now you got to cross the tracks. There's someone like Estelle Talley teaches you. Then you got Ray Charles explaining, now that you're across the tracks, what notes are you going to play? And so now we go on and we, 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 we do that movie, which we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know that it was going to be like that. It wasn't a studio film. Uh, it was independent. And, uh, you know, doing the doing the process of the movie was interesting. Of my you know background being from Terrell, knowing how to mimic, but I needed to know how to do Ray do Ray Charles like the young Ray Charles. So I got in touch with uh, Quincy Jones. And for all of you young ones out there uh, listening, make sure you Google Chris, Quincy Jones and Ray Charles. And the reason why you should do that is because they were the building blocks of our music today, which started in Seattle, Washington, which was interesting. Seattle at that time was, was a big hub for jazz music, jazz musicians. And that's where Ray Charles migrated to running into a young Quincy Jones. Ray Charles actually taught Quincy Jones everything he knows about music. Who is Quincy Jones for you young ones listening? Quincy Jones was the one who did... I mean, he played, he was a band director for Frank Sinatra. All of those guys, the Rat Pack, all of those guys, he was the band leader. Uh, if you, and then when I met Quincy Jones, he talks about that. Yeah, man, shit, man, music, man. These young cats don't know music anymore, man. Shit, they wouldn't, they'd play in the key of Q if they would, man. Shit, man, when I played Baby Frankie, baby, I said, Mr. Jones, who's Frankie? Man, shit, Frank Sinatra, man. Shit, I was young, man. The band leader, we were playing in Monaco, man. We didn't even have time to rehearse, baby. We are just there playing, waiting on fucking Frank to come in. I said, what do you mean? He says, we, we had to play this show in Monaco. Frank had never met me, knew that I was this young kid who was great with the music. I become the band leader. We don't get a chance to rehearse. Monaco, where it's billionaires and millionaires in the audience waiting on this incredible show. And he says, we're just vamping, man. Shit. And Frank doesn't even come out on the stage. He comes through the audience, man. Shit. Talking and shit. I'm like, man, I'm nervous as hell. And then Frank got up. He said he sung. The band was tight. And Frank Sinatra knighted him, like gave him a ring that was like, you know, pretty significant, if you know what I mean. And if you guys uh, Google Frank Sinatra, you'll understand what I mean about the Lucoso Nostra. And uh, uh, so here I am now talking to Quincy Jones, and he's telling me about Ray Charles. He says, yeah, man, Ray taught me everything, man. 
shit, man. He taught me how to dress. We were wearing suits, suits, zoot suits and shit, man. He had nice suits, tailor-made. And I said, why did he have nice suits? Shit, man, he was always around women, man. And women would tell him, man, those zoot suits are ugly because he couldn't see. So the women would tell him how to, <laughs> how to dress. And I said, well, Mr. Jones, I'm trying to figure out how to do Ray Charles, but I need the young Ray Charles, right? And he says, well, man, shit, let me look. And he gives me a cassette tape to you young ones out there. A cassette tape back in the day was a way for us to, I'm just messing with it, to, uh, to share music. And I said, okay, I got the cassette tape. I had to go rent a truck from, rent a, from a Hertz rental car because there was no cassette players in the cars. So I popped the cassette tape in. And uh, uh, on the tape was, hi, this is Donna Shore from the Donna Shore Show. We have two very wonderful musicians here today, and Mr. Kenny Rogers and Mr. Ray Charles. And you hear the young Ray. Hey, you know what, Don? I'm just so happy to be here. Uh, so happy to, uh, that you know my music. I mean, this is just grand. And it was the young Ray, like, you know, uh, because when I was talking to the older Ray, I didn't want to grab those bad old habits. I wanted to play him young. So I hear Ray talking young on the tape. And then all of a sudden, he's in charge of the of the interview, and this is, you know, he was just doing his thing. And then all of a sudden, she says, Talk about the drugs, Ray. And then he started to stutter. Hey, hey, well, you know what? I, I. So I used that as DNA to play the iconic character, Ray Charles, that when he's talking about his music, he's fully in control. When he's confronted with real life things, why are you doing drugs? Why don't you take care of your family? Why are you cheating on your wife? He would stutter. And I say this long story to say this. After the success of Ray Charles, after being nominated for uh, an Oscar. Uh, my grandmother got a chance to witness all of that. She got a chance to see the bearing of the fruits of you know of of her labor for her young kid coming from that racially misunderstood town, which I love and wouldn't change anything in the world when it comes to Terrell, Texas. Her saying, "Get across the tracks." We've now gone across the tracks. We've gone all over the world, and then here we are. And think about think about what's the what's the odds of a kid who lives in a town population twelve thousand two hundred and forty people from Terrell to go all the way to Los Angeles, California, meet Puff, meet all these different people, and then actually have an opportunity to win an Oscar. And your grandmother gets a chance to see that. Now, October 23rd, 2004, she passed away, which if you know, the actual awards was uh, 2005 uh, in February. But she got a chance to hang in there and, and you know, and feel it, you know. So uh, it's, uh, uh, it, it, you know, my grandmother was just like, you know, the, the blueprint. How do you think of teaching confidence with your own kids? Because you're, you're clearly a very confident guy. Yeah. Uh, grandmother was very bold, very strong woman. How do you try to teach that to your kids? Well, what you do with your kids is, like when, when my daughter is, I, there's a, the phrase that when you see Annalise, I, my, my, my daughter and my oldest daughter, Corinne, I would always ask them, what's on the other side of fear? And they'd be like, huh? I said, what's on the other side of it? Meaning, like, if I stood in the middle of this floor right there and just yelled, ah, what's on the other side of that? Or if I stood on the, in the middle of the floor and went, ah, what's on the other side of it? Meaning, like, either you do or you don't, but there's no penalty. There's no reward. It's just you just be yourself. So I taught them what's on the other side of fear. Nothing. 
people are nervous for no reason because there's nothing. No one's going to come out and slap you or beat you up. And you're just nervous. So why even have that? And so that's a building block that they can use not just about the entertainment business, because that's the other thing. You don't have to be an entertainer, but whatever you go into, whether you be a lawyer or school teacher or tech guy or whatever, or girl, whatever it is, there's nothing on the other side of it. What's on the other side of fear? Nothing. I like it. So it's like, so why are you, why, when people say, oh, I'm so nervous, what are you nervous about? <laughs> Reminds me of this quote that I, I sort of re- recite to myself, and I'm going to paraphrase it because I have it written down, but it's from Mark Twain. It says, uh, I'm an old man who's known a great many troubles, most of which never happened. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because all of it is in our head. Yeah. When we talk about fear or lack of uh, being aggressive, or well, it's, just, it's, 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 it's in your head. So not everybody's going to be super aggressive, but the one thing that you can deal with is a, a person's fears. So if you start early, if they are a shy person, they just won't be as shy if you keep instilling those things. So The mimicry, the impersonation. Yeah. How early did that start? Because I read, and and maybe you can tell me if this is off or not, because you never know with the internet, uh, that your second grade teacher yeah. used to reward the class if they behaved by letting you tell jokes? Yeah, they would let, they would let me tell jokes because I would get in trouble. Miss Reeves, my, I think it was my third grade teacher, Miss Reeves, because I would like talk, but I was very smart. My grandmother had a school. I, was, I lived in a school, so I I already knew the, the 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 from like first to eighth grade. I already knew all of the lesson plan. So you know, a kid like me sitting there with nothing to do, I'm gonna get in trouble. <laughs> so she would uh, let me do stand up comedy on Fridays for the kids, and all I would do is my grandmother would watch Johnny Carson, and the only room that had the television was my room, so I had to watch Johnny Carson too as a kid. So nine years old, seven, eight, nine years old, I would just take the jokes that were being told by uh, David Brenner and Steve Allen and a young uh, David Letterman. Uh, uh, who else would be on there? Franklin Ajay. Uh, you guys, when, you, when you're hearing this, you, you go Google these guys. Uh, a young Jay Leno. Uh, uh, these were like sort of like, uh, you know, Richard Pryor. What? So I would take those jokes. And tell them at school because those kids wouldn't watch Please tell me you used Richard Pryor on Fridays. Well, well I guess it was on well, primetime, well, so it wasn't well, Richard, Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor on primetime, you couldn't, you couldn't, you he right, couldn't really clean. say anything on primetime. He was clean. But like uh, 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 Rich Little. And Google Rich Little because Rich Little was the first person that I saw do impersonations. So there was a, there was, this was, this had to be, this had to be like 76, 1976. So it was like fifth grade for me. The joke was uh, Jimmy Carter, which was the president at the time, singing You Light Up My Life. And at that time, his brother uh, was getting caught drunk all the time, like uh, Billy. <laughs> uh, so it was a Jimmy Carter going, uh, so many nights, uh, me and my brother Billy uh, would sit by the window waiting for somebody to bring some peanuts and beer. And so that was my first attempt at an, an impersonation. And then it went on from there to do Richard Nixon. I am not a crook. So you know, uh, who else would I do? Reagan. Uh, that came later. But but here's it. Reagan came later. But Reagan came like in the '80s when I was actually like 21, and I was the first black guy uh, doing the Reagan impersonation. Probably the only one. So I would be uh, on stage doing my impersonations and going to Ronald Reagan. People are like, "No, it ain't no way." Well, well, as a matter of fact, I uh, will. Uh, 
oh no, there you go again. And so that <laughs> that being being young and 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 that teacher, Miss Reeves and Miss Miss Douthit and all those teachers allowed Miss Cole allowed me to be myself. Um, you know, help me hone in on what I was going to be doing for the rest of my life. Like, like literally my friends from Terra go like, how the fuck did you do that? This is the shit you used to do. <laughs> you turned your third in the grade cafeteria. <laughs> right, it was the literally theory. the same shit. I'd be like, wow, millions of people are watching this shit. And it's the same, it's the same thing. And then, and then, you know, as people came, uh, came up, you know, the, the impersonation, you know, like, now, Cosby is back in. To do the Cosby impersonation is back in. Don't know how I'm going to do it, but there's definitely a Cosby joke somewhere. I don't know where, it, but I, I, I used to do Cosby. Because of the people and the jello pudding and the and the filth and the flying and the farm, which Eddie Murphy did, but people didn't know, like, Cosby's real speaking voice is not like that. What's the speaking voice like? His speaking voice was different, because I remember I got in trouble with Mr. Cosby because... Uh, <laughs> He felt that the, the 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 movie Booty Call was not cool, and he said some things in the press about us. And I was like a young comedian, like, damn man, I, I'm just trying to work, you know. But but his speaking voice, when he was on the phone. Well, see, the thing is, is that when you do something like Booty Call, what is a Booty Call? See, why are you calling the Booty? You know, whatever. <laughs> but it was so. It wasn't the. It was because, you, and then you find out that that was his stick. Yeah, yeah. Know? Because and kid and the child and people and the far, but you know, so I know that that will that will come up. I, I'll, I'll find a joke for for Cosby that, uh, of course, is going to be a little uh, people going to be like uh, but it's going to be funny and shit. Uh, and now who who's now uh, Doc Rivers from uh, the Clippers? Hey, you know we're going to try. Hey, you know it, it's not Blake's fault. You know, next year we gotta, you know, we gotta do better. You know, it's a, so I'm working on like the new impersonations now, uh, and so that's and the way you do an impersonation is usually about it's 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 musical, like um, say Kermit the Frog, right? So Kermit the Frog is here, so it's sort of like the way you do your here, 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 you know what I'm saying? It's it's finding right, so. So the actual voice tone is in the key of G for Kermit the Frog. Uh, uh, Kermit, the, <laughs> Kermit the Frog here, here with the Sesame Street. So that's, and then once you get the voice tone, it's how you make, it's how you manipulate your 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 mouth to get the sound. Because you know it's, uh, 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 uh. so it's, it's sort of constricting. And then and then and then it's and then it's asking the character to come sit with you. Uh, Kermit the Frog here, here with the uh, three little pi- so you know. It's, but the key is this, and at the same time, Kermit the Frog. Who else sounds like that? Sammy Davis Jr. A little bit. Uh, because you know, man. <laughs> so now Kermit the Frog is is one way, but if you just twist your voice or twist your mouth to the right and grab some swag, now you're Sammy Davis Jr. Come with you, figure because, man, you know, it's the same voice, you know? So that's that's sort of like the mechanical way of, of getting to the impression. So you would start with not the visual, because obviously those people who are listening can't see this, but the mannerisms are also very much on point. Mannerisms are, are important because, like, uh, uh like I, I I do a LeBron James impersonation, which is really not a a a a, a, 
a voice. It's more of his mannerism. It's the jaw. You know, it's the look. <laughs> Let's go, bro. You know, just go, bro. You know, the game of basketball, you know, we just try to, you know, you know, it's that. You know, you know it's right. It's right after. It's right after playing. You know, when he comes off the off the, the court, they catch me still tired. You know, uh, you know the game of basketball. We just try to, you know, do the best. You know, so it's the the mannerism. So people will appreciate the mannerisms yeah, first. The physicality, the physicality of of someone like uh, 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 LeBron or, or you know different. You know, like I said, different different personalities bring bring about different things. When you look back on what uh, what Ray said to you. If you can play the blues, you can do anything. If you had to translate that for your own kids, let's just say, if you can do X, fill in the blank, you can do anything, what would you put in that blank? I, I would say this. It's a, it's a couple of things when you have kids who grow up around Hollywood. If you can stay motivated and if you can not do some things, not be jaded, not be entitled, not be spoiled, not do drugs, not get into all the bad stuff because it's, they, you know, our kids live in an elevated space. So what I try to do, and, and Ricardo sees this all, Ricardo sees this all the time, and so does Justine. We don't play around when it comes to discipline as well. Like when the kids are here and all of our friends, the size of the house means nothing to if you don't do the right thing you're going to get in major trouble and you're going to get in Texas trouble. You know what I'm saying? Like how my grandmother disciplined. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a different thing when it comes to kids that are live in a privileged situation. Luckily, my daughters are very, very, uh, especially my oldest daughter. My oldest daughter never even asked me for money. Never asked for the new car. Never asked for a plane to ride coach. I mean, you know, so I think she really, really has, uh, a great head on her shoulders. I remember I got this Rolls Royce and I went to go pick my daughter up in the Rolls Royce thinking that's going to be, you know, pick her up in the Rolls Royce, drop the top. Drop it. What up, dog? So I'm riding, go to pick her up at school. She won't get in the car. <laughs> I said, baby, what, what, what are you doing? Look at the top. It comes up. She says, dad, I'm not getting in the car. Calls her mom and says, could you come pick, pick me up? I said, what you doing? She says, I'm not getting, you You goofy. You make me, you make me look stupid in front of my friends. I was like, oh, so you know, she's really, and that's something she has on the inside. My youngest daughter is a little different. She wants to ride in the rain, in the Rolls Royce all the time. Daddy, <laughs> let's take this car. We riding down Sunset Boulevard. She playing Rihanna, you know what I'm saying, with her shades on. So she's a little different in, in, in that sense. And I remember telling her, I said, well, 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 Annalise, we can't ride around in L.A. in the, in the limo, in the, in the Rolls Royce with the top down. You know, we're on our way to the Soho house, and it's sort of finicky up there. So I got to at least put the top up. She's like, why? I said, I just, I said, listen, let me ride until I get to Soho house. And then I'll put the top up as we get there. Okay. So we ride up in the Soho house. We're in the valet and all of these, you know, celebs and people are coming out. <laughs> and she yells out, Jamie Foxx in the house. <laughs> and I'm like, hell no. So I'm trying to pull the top down. All of the other celebrities are like, look at this motherfucker being arrogant and shit. <laughs> He's so gaudy, this motherfucker. And he's got a kid <laughs> announcing him. So, so you know, it's a lot of things you can tell your kids, man. And then, and then you just have to hope for the best and, and, and be there. What, uh, what is your birth name? Eric Marlon Bishop. And how did Eric Marlon Bishop become Jamie Foxx? Man, I was Eric Marlon Bishop. 
graduated high school, 86. I get out to California and I start doing, you know, I'm in college and, and, and uh, um, doing the music. But I would go up on these open mic nights for comedy. So I go, I do really well. I get, get like standing ovation. And then I, I came to L.A., got a standing ovation. And then when I came back every week, I wouldn't get called up. I was like, man, what? why can't, what's going on? But what I noticed and, was... And is the, how does the open mic work? Well, here's it is. What you do is you put your name on a list, put your name on a list, and they pick from the list, and they say, okay, these are people that are going up. So I went up, had a great set. Then for the next three, four weeks, I didn't, they never called my name. I said, yo, money, did you see my name? Yeah, yeah, you weren't on the list. You were on the list, but we, we got other people. But I found out that the comedians were actually running the list. So the comedians that had been here for a while, I was like, we, we don't want him on here because he's showing us up. So I was like, fuck. So I ended up going to this evening at the improv, the improv like in Santa Monica. And so I had never been there. So I would notice that a hundred guys would show up, five girls would show up. The five girls would always get on the on the show because they needed to break up the monotony. So I said, hmm, I got some. So I wrote down on the list all of these unisex names. Stacy Green, Tracy Brown, Jamie Foxx. And now the guy chooses from the list. He says, uh, is uh, Jamie Foxx, is she here? She'll be first. I was like, no, money, that, that's, that's me. Ah, oh, okay. All right, well, you, you're going to, you're the fresh meat. I said, what was that? They were shooting Evening at the Improv, this old old comedy show back in the day. Said, you'll be the guy that will just throw up to see if you get a laugh or two. You know, it's going to be a tough crowd. Fresh meat. Fresh meat. I said, cool. So I go up in between two of the guys, get a standing ovation. People are like, who's the kid? Is he on the show? I said, no, he's fresh meat. Amateur. So then they started yelling my name. Yo, Jamie. Yo, Jamie. Hey, Jamie, but I'm not used to the name. <laughs> so now they think I'm arrogant. This motherfucker thinks he's the she's not even listening to us. So I, I, I took that name and it stuck. And then I started building everything out off of it. I, uh, back in the day, people used to wear jackets and put names on the jacket. So I had Sly as a dot, dot, dot. Uh, coming to the foxhole, foxhole, you know, things like that. I'm going to grab a little something to eat. Yeah, sure thing. Okay, we are back after a little food break. Yeah. And uh, we talked about some of your comedy starting in third grade, maybe earlier. We talked about uh, grandmother. And what I'd like to talk about a little bit more is fear. So you mentioned on the other yeah. side of fear. By the time you got to doing the open mics, getting up on stage, were you nervous? Were you afraid? Or were you over it? Because nah, you, you, because first I looked at it first. Like I... I went to an open mic night and saw the guys. I was like, man, these dudes are terrible. <laughs> and uh, so when you go on stage and your whole life is not, I want to be a comedian, I went on stage like, yo, I'm going to just fuck around. So if I hit, cool. If I miss, I wasn't trying to be Who that cares? anyway. You know, I wanted to do more music, but... But when I went on stage, it was just like, it was, it was just natural. It was a, 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 you know, I belong here. So I think that's the thing too, when it comes to entertainment, uh, there's a certain like, oh, I belong here. This is what I'm supposed to do. How successful I will be or won't be. That's something out of my hands, but I do know that this is where I belong. And that's with anything and anybody. Like when you can, when you can sort of listen to that voice in your head or what's in your heart 
and you get a chance to do something that you really feel like you're supposed to do, that alleviates a lot of the fear. Now, if it was a surgeon or a lawyer or something, you know, something, you know, if something that I'm not, you know, versed in or something like that, then maybe there would be more fear. But with this, you don't have, or I don't have those types of fears. And and as I've gotten older in the business, I've sort of simplified things. Like now I just execute. I have to ask people like Ricardo, Justin, Justin, what should I ex- execute? So the fear of a celebrity or, or, or an artist now is how do I get my art off in a world where it's uh, uh, the, the, the social media driven sort of uh, uh, ridicule and critici- criticism. Like I always say like this, like a person like Prince or a person like Michael Jackson could have never survived in today's world because in the in the day of the internet and where everybody has a voice, <clears throat> most of the voices are hateful voices or not understanding. Like like if you saw Prince with uh, uh, a guitar and a bandana and the way he dressed, you know, people would meme the shit out of it. You know, so now it's a, a it's it's not a fear, but it's just a a question that I have to always ask them, like. Yo, is this is this the cool shit to do or not the cool shit to do? And so what I learned is when it's just executing something, when it's either executing a song or executing a joke or executing things within within uh, entertainment, it's cool. But then you have to wonder, like, how do you get it off? Like, how do you, like, even now when you talk about the Bill Cosby joke, back in the day, we just tell the joke. Now you got to be like, okay, I got to tell the joke in a way that it's still funny, it still keeps the bite on it, but, you know, so those are the different, like, for me as a, a entertainer, where there's not fear, it's just like, you know, questions. Does that make sense? Makes sense. No, it does make sense. The considerations. When you, when you, uh, have you bombed on stage before? Oh, yeah. Okay. What's, what's, what, two things. What do you say? When you are bombing, yeah. what is your internal dialogue or oh, response? And then secondly... Internal dialogue is, boy, you stink. <laughs> boy, you bombing. <laughs> uh, I bomb, and it wasn't a lot. Of, I only bombed like twice. Do you remember your first? Yeah, yeah. I, I did this, this show for this guy named Lattimore. Old blues singer. I'm 21. What was his name? Lattimore. Lattimore. Sounds like Voldemort. Yeah, yeah Lattimore. Lattimore. So... This guy saw me at this other club and said, hey, man, you know, Lattimore's performing around the corner. Man, would you come and open them? I said, whatever. I said, how much you pay? He said, pay $50. I said, I'm there. 50 bucks. I need it. So this is like $89.90. So I get there, and I don't know who Lattimore is. I just know it's a lot of older people. Like, I mean, like, oh, oh. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> Where are the people at? These other people. So I go up. And the setting was different. It was like the chairs and stuff were way in the back. It was like a book banquet setting. And it's in the middle of the hood, you know, Crenshaw. And, like, the tables are, like, from here to where, like, 20 feet away, 30 feet away from me. So I don't have that. And um, I, oh, you and I didn't have been, that yeah, proximity. And I hadn't been doing stand-up comedy that long. I'd only been doing it for, like, a year. So I had, if I'm funny, I got an hour. If I'm not funny, it's about 10 minutes worth of shit because I would just take a joke and just keep – Spinning it and spinning it. So my first joke, they didn't get. Second joke, they didn't get. I said, shit, I'm daring now all the jokes. 
So I said, well, let me do this before I do anything. Let me just talk about people in the audience. So I looked, and I saw this guy with this sort of suit on with a butterfly collar. <laughs> like, oh, shit, I'm going to talk about him with the butterfly collar. But before I could say that, I looked around. Everybody has a butterfly collar. This is what they really want to look like. And so uh, I just said, hey, man, I you know, I don't know what else y'all want. And uh, pretty soon Lattimore is going to come up. You guys ready for Lattimore? And I just started doing that. So I'm going to take a break. So I get off stage. And the dude that was washing the dishes takes his apron off and goes, man, I got it. As a mic, how y'all feel? And he started doing these old stock jokes. Kills. <laughs> and so I said, okay, now I know what it is. You got to have jokes that are appropriate for your audience. So I learned on how to tell jokes for everybody. Because at first, my jokes was geared towards women. It was singing. and that. So what I started doing from that, from that day on, I would go to like Des Moines, Iowa, Davenport, Iowa, Boise, Idaho where it's all white, Gunnison, Colorado, all white. And I would go do like 40 minutes of all black material to see what they understood, what they didn't understand. So if I go to these all white places, and if they understood 15 minutes, I log that 15 minutes. I can go to any place where it's just all white. And and you would determine they if understand. they understood it by the laughs. Huh? You would, if, you would determine if they understood by the it laugh. by the if laughs. By, by the, you know, I would ask, y'all know who this is? Uh, and so I would tell the joke if 15 minutes they understood it I can go to any place in the world that's all white and they get it then I would go to my chocolate city Chicago D.C. Uh, Florida and do all of my uh, political highbrow stuff and see what the see, see what the black folks understood man what the fuck are you talking about doc? now they understood 15 minutes now I got 15 to 30 minutes to 45 minutes that wherever I go no matter what age They'll understand no matter what gender, no matter what race, they'll understand this 45 minutes. So I had to learn how to use the formula in order for you to be funny. And then once you got your comedy license, once you've been seen by enough people in the highest way, like in the, like if you look at, uh, like if you look at the arc of a Kevin Hart, like Kevin Hart takes that arc, takes the same formula. I'm not for sure how he, put it in his in his in his mind but he's doing the same thing to where he's going to all of these places all over the world implementing his comedy and if they get it he's he's gathering all of that so that now when people see Kevin Hart no matter where in the world they're going to laugh you know so it's the, the the you know becoming a great comedian is also having that formula going on in your head because if you if you paint yourself into a corner, like you're only the black comedian or you're only the Hispanic comedian or whatever that is, then it's hard for you to become universal. I mean, Eddie was, Eddie Murphy was great. He had an opportunity through Saturday night live to get it to everybody, but uh, uh, it's definitely a, a formula to not bomb it. So what would you say to yourself? So that was the first bomb. You mentioned two. Yeah. What was the second? The second one. And if, if it's too, if it's hard to recall the, the, the follow-up question is going to be, what is the post-game analysis when you step off the stage after bombing, say, the second time? Well, well you got to – when I bombed the second time was way later in my career when I'm working out jokes. But I don't like to work out jokes and tell people I'm working out. I like to actually do a show, come and do the show. Right. So we're in a – I think it was Irvine. So you don't tell people you're working on – No, 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 no. 
I think I think that's cheating, and I think you you get bad habits. So I, I do a show in Irvine, California. First show, I kill. They was just ready for him. I'm like, oh, man, everything works. Second show, <laughs> bombed because I didn't take time to dig out the jokes and that. So, but when you bomb, you go like, okay, all right, let's go. Let's check it out. So I got a team of my, my guys. I said, let's go. Okay, that didn't work. No, you got to put this in front of that. You got to put that behind this because that's going to kick this off. People didn't know what that was, so maybe we don't say that. So, you know, you have to – You when you take the bomb, when we take the L – it's not like you're not funny. What's the L? Like you take the loss. Oh, okay. When you take the loss, it's not like you're not <laughs> funny. It's just like, okay, you just didn't put the shit together. So that's the other thing, too. When you do become funny, it's going to be harder now to make people laugh because you set the bar. So the, now you're... High water yeah, so, now, so watch this. The hardest part for Chris Rock was after he had done something great in stand-up. Because now... You got to top that. The hardest part for Eddie Murphy, because Eddie wants to come out and do stand-up, is how do I top that in your head? The hardest part is coming for Kevin Hart in the fact that you sm- you smashed him. Now you gotta you gotta you know what I'm saying you gotta know how to you, you gotta know how to refresh yeah. because. When you do something like, like I, I would look at my stuff and go like, I got to quit doing that because that shtick that I'm doing, people are catching on and they're like, okay, motherfucker, we done already seen that shit. So that, that's the other thing. You got to have great material and you got to have, you got to know, you got to know how to move. Cause like right now it's the perfect time for Eddie Murphy to come out and do stand up because it's been so long. It's nostalgic. It was 30 years ago. So now you can catch a new young uh, you can still excite the older, you know what I'm saying? So being a stand-up comedian is tough. And you've seen a lot of funny guys not be funny anymore. Why? Because you can't top what you did. You look at the Jim Carrey, you go like, okay, man, where you at? Where you at? You know what I'm saying? You know, d- don't give up the funny. Uh, or you look at Chris, I always look at Chris Tucker and be like, motherfucker, where you at? Don't, don't, leave, don't leave us. Because being a stand-up comedian is an interesting thing. Most stand-up comedians want to look good. In what way? We just want to look good. Think about this. When Eddie Murphy started doing stand-up, he was funny, but then he started doing, you know, the weather leather suits, and it was a fly shit, and the rings, and they didn't want to look good. Joe Piscopo started working out with the muscles. You know what I'm saying? So as a stand-up comedian, we got to be careful not to look too good because people start going, what the fuck are you doing? You ain't cute, nigga. We just want to laugh. You know what I'm saying? But when we started, you know... We start getting into our shit. That's when we lose. Cause I did that. Like, like I got to uh, my thing was uh, after in Living Color, the show called the Living Color that I did. I I felt like I had made it. So I wasn't necessarily on the good looking shit, but I was on the I've made it jokes. I went on stage and was doing rich jokes. Just got that Range Rover. Anybody else? It's crazy out here. You know they're so finicky, right? Motherfuckers are looking at me like, what the fuck is you talking about? <laughs> and then uh, uh, I was talking about, you know, the square footage of the house, man. When they get a certain square feet, man, that shit is crazy and maintaining, you know? <laughs> Motherfuckers are like, motherfucker, if you don't get off the goddamn stage. I'd lost it. Right. I lost it. And I walked off stage and all of a sudden, I walk off stage. I give it up for Jamie Foxx. And I'm thinking, they're going crazy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm standing outside the club and I hear the crowd going crazy. I'm like, what the fuck they doing? I just went off stage. What the fuck are they laughing at? 
And I opened the door and there was a kid, skinny, little tank top on, barely fit. His name was Chris Tucker. He was smashing. He was, no one has been that funny within 15 minutes. I've never seen, I've never seen, and I watch them all. I've never seen a stand-up where people were laughing so hard. Like, I said, he's going to kill somebody. Somebody's gonna, <laughs> like, when he says, last night, how was you? Oh, I killed. It's going to be true. Somebody's going to have a fucking heart attack. <laughs> and I sat down and said, and I went, I can't do that. I lost that. So I left, went to another club that night, bomb. Like, it wasn't just, you know. So finally, I went over to Okinawa where the troops were. I started doing stand-up over there for the troops to sort of get back. It was my Rocky moment. Like, you know, I started running up the steps, chasing chickens and shit. Bah, 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 trying to get back. And uh, uh, for a stand-up comedian, that's the one thing you can never let go. You can never stop being, excuse me, a certain goofiness to you. And so, and like when you talk about fear or when you talk about bombing, it's, uh, uh, it's different when, you, when, you, when you've done it for a long time, you know. And when you do bomb, you just got to get right back up in it. And you got to acknowledge it. Okay, I stunk, nigga. Because they're going to let you know. <laughs> yeah, they'll let you like know. Like today's world, it ain't, you can't do nothing in today's world without somebody letting you know, like, oh, nigga, you fucked that up. Like, <laughs> you know. What are the sources or where do most of your best bits come from? When you look back at the stuff that just killed, uh, is it... The shower, the the thing that bugs you three times, so you write it down. I mean, how do you develop your material? It was observation, and like you know, I do jokes with them. You know, it's just sort of like observation. Uh, you know, early on it was the black and white thing. You know, black folks do it this way, white folks do it, which was the way we were doing comedy in 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 the 80, late eighties and nineties. Oh, the average white man's heart it has it. No, it has to do with the heart. The average white man's heart beats like this. While the average black man's heart beats like this. <laughs> you know, ladies, that's why you have a choice. Would you rather make love to somebody like this? Or would you rather make love to somebody like this? <laughs> I mean, that was the jokes, you know, at the time. So it was observational. And then it was personal. Like, you do your observation first, and then it was personal. My grandmother, who was, uh, um, you know, we lived together, you know. And when she first heard, like, uh, on television what age was being old she didn't know what it ac- exactly meant she just knew that it was bad but she thought that since she's always on me anyway that i'm gonna catch aids <laughs> but it was for the wrong reasons like she would say boy you gonna it's six in the morning you gonna wake up shit half the day done gone i said granny what you mean is it six shit i'm there sleeping anybody sleep that long got to have aids i said, <laughs> I said granny I don't think that's how. No, I saw it on TV. You sleeping too long. You got A. I said, Grant, I don't think that's how they exactly. <laughs> and then, like, I would use her towels. Like, you know, you you know, old Southern women had them. There was a towel used, and it was a nice towel. So I used a nice towel. <laughs> Boy, I know you ain't using my towels. I said, you, you don't put the A's on the towels. You don't use everybody's towel. Anybody use a towel like that got to have A's. I said, Granny, I don't think that's how. You know, so it was opposite. And this is what she was actually saying. So when I did that joke on stage, people was just, you know, would die. So it's observational, then it's personal. And then some of the comedians are great politically. I'm not necessarily a political guy. My thing was the impersonation of the politician, like Bill Clinton. Uh, you know, uh, I did not have sex with that woman. You know, it was, you know, things like that. But, uh oh. 
it's so many different ways and so many different guys out there that you that that you look at and go, ooh. Like when I would look at a young Chris Rock, the way he was a technician, just me. Or you look at Jay Leno, or you look at uh, even Arsenio Hall when he would work out, or you see Eddie working out a joke. Uh, you know, it's they are or, or watching George Lopez, who knows how to tap into the bass and just really bring you into his world and stuff. So it's some, it's some, uh, some guys that Sarah Silverman, uh, just I mean a technician, Amy Schumer, watching her on a, just a Saturday Night Live when she's you know working her shit out, uh, a young Whoopi Goldberg at the Met. There's so many people that you can watch and see how to how to you know tap into your own skill set you know but uh i try to look at all of them and try to just you know not steal from it but just get inspired by it all who are some of the most underrated comedians who come to mind or people who you think haven't had their due haven't been appreciated? oh i, I wouldn't say underrated but i i think that were just that were just like warriors that never got that shine uh there was a guy named tk kirkland who was a warrior but he never got to shine. And TK had a colorful past, you know. And, and he'll let you know. He said, you know, he was he was a crazy motherfucker. But TK had jokes like, and why does Kermit the Frog always say, hi-ho, hi-ho? Is he a pimp? And why, <laughs> and why do fat people wear leather pants? Do they think that shit is cute? And why do people in wheelchairs tie their motherfucking shoes? Do they think they're going to trip? Oh, man, it was just, he was just amazing. And his delivery, you know what I'm saying? He say, uh, uh, he says, because I'm T to the motherfucking K. That's what type of motherfucker I am. Don't play me. Play Lotto. You got a better chance. And he's, he, <laughs> he played, he, he, made, he, made, he made himself a character on stage that was just, you know, you guys are too young to, to, to know this joke, but Bugle Boy Jeans. Bugle Boy Jr. used to have a commercial where a girl would pull up in a car and says, excuse me, are those Bugle Boy... She she would say this to a guy, like he's walking on the street with his jeans. She says, excuse me, are those Bugle Boy jeans you're wearing? Why, yes, they are. And she'd get in the car. TK had a joke, man. It was so funny. He said, man, let let that motherfucker be a motherfucking black girl in the motherfucking car. Excuse me. Are those Bugle Boy jeans you're wearing? Yeah. Get in the car, motherfucker. I mean, people would just go. The dude has so many, like, levels. And uh, he just, you know, he's he's an underground guy. Uh, who else? That was a lot. I mean, a lot of people. Earthquake, amazing. Uh, uh, Earthquake is amazing. Uh, what's my other dude's name? Uh, Tony Roberts, amazing. Tony Roberts, man, I've never laughed so he says, uh, he said, uh, oh, man, I, I had to dig out some of his jokes. But he talks about, uh, it's very physical, but he talks about being on a plane and the plane is going down. And he says, he said he was on a plane and he thought the plane was going down. So he says, so I wanted to fuck everybody before, you know, I wanted to fuck before. <laughs> he says, oh, while the plane's going down, he's fucking everybody. You know, he fucked the, he fucked the, uh, he fucked the nun. He was fucking everybody. And then the plane leveled off. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry, y'all. I, I'm sorry, my bad. <laughs> Just hilarious, man. And there's a there's so many, man, so many. Not a lot of new comedians now that are actually 
Uh, it's funny, right? That are actually dangerous now. We don't have dangerous, dangerous comedians. What do you the mean only by dangerous? dangerous? The dangerous comedian that we have right now is Amy Schumer. She's dangerous. In what like, way? Like, like she she'll say it. Like, it'll be hot button. You know what I mean? Have you uh, Have you ever heard? Uh, I saw this guy on a. I actually heard of him through a guy named Evan Goldberg, who's yeah. Seth Rogen's writing yeah. partner. Oh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> and so Gerard, exactly. That was good. Yeah, yeah. So Gerard Carmichael. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. His special. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, He's like, go. I would never make a rape joke. This is more yeah, of a rape question. question. And it's yeah, like, yeah. oh my funny. god. He's dangerous. That that struck he's me da- dangerous. Well, he's da- and it's not a lot of that anymore. It's not a lot of dangerous comedians. And I think that's where we sort of go. Like, you know, where's that danger? Like, you when you when you when you see Amy Schumer, you see like I saw her in a room talking about catching a dick in front of <laughs> Robert De Niro. Like we're at the American. Uh, film awards whatever like that and she's just I mean hardcore dance which is what Sarah Silverman started out as you know so but Amy looks like she's rounded the corner and is now you know really making it you know making it dope for herself if you look back at uh, In Living Color and I, I watched the show and it just if in retrospect it seems like such a such a magical combination of people so how did that group get assembled and uh I mean what made that team so special because I mean you look at the list right I mean you've got Chris Rock you've got Jim Carrey you've got the Waynes you've got it just goes uh, Jennifer Lopez you got like you go down the line it's just it's an all-star roster Well at that time Keenan Ivory Waynes was a, he he put it all together and he was able to grab all of these incredibly talented people and make them get along and figure out how to squeeze all of this talent into 22 minutes of programming. Sure. Because it was only, it was a 30 minute show, so it was 22 minutes. But he was very disciplined in how we make jokes. You were not allowed to come in and be half-assed. He pulled you to the side and say, as a black comedian, you cannot be half-assed. You're either great or you don't exist. So, and he says, don't take the racial part of that any kind of way. That's just the way it is. Because he wrote for Eddie Murphy. He was around the greatest. He says, I'm around the greatest all the time, so that's what we're going to do. So when you see Damon Wayans come in, and I just got hired, like they had already been doing the show for like a year or two years. So when I saw Damon walk in and Jim walk in, it was like, it was like fucking Jurassic Park. <laughs> fucking, <laughs> it was like fucking T-Rex and fucking, you know what I'm saying? And the way I got on the show was was crazy too because it went from the auditioning process. It was 100 comedians down to 50, down to 25, down to 10, down to 5. I was part of the 5, but I was losing. I wasn't doing well within the uh, improv of it because I just wasn't catching catching the right shit. And then Keenan says something incredible. He says, well, I dig this, but I want to see y'all on stage doing stand-up because I want to have stand-up comedians. I was like, oh, shit, that's my shit. That's my shit. And the other four people didn't do stand-up. It was only one other girl that did stand-up. God bless her, Yvette Wilson. But the other three didn't do stand-up. So I was like, oh, man. So that night, everybody's going to the Laugh Factory, which was just starting. Because at, at that time, the comedy store was dominating. Laugh Factory was just, and, and they begged, can we please have the audition in the Laugh Factory? So I show up late on purpose. 
because I wanted to be last. Ah, uh, smart. So I show up late, and Tamara Rawit, uh, who was the producer, and what are you doing? You're late. Oh my god, why aren't you here? We're supposed to go on early. You're supposed to be first, Jamie. Oh my god, you're gonna kill me. <laughs> I said, oh damn. Well, we're gonna, can I can I just go up last? Yes, you have to, because we've already started. Get in here, you. So go ahead. Now, this was interesting for me because I was in White World. I was, like, on the mainstream. I did all my jokes in the hood at that time. You know what I'm saying? I was the hood guy. So I was like, oh, shit, you know. We uptown, you know what I'm saying? It's like everything's clean and shit, you know? Ain't no weed in the air or nothing, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> ain't nobody snuck no drinks in and shit. And it's an audition thing. So I'm watching the guys, and, you know, God bless them. They just had never done stand-up before. So I had my cassette tape, and I knew what I was coming up to. I'm coming up to Heavy D's in Effect with more Bounce to the Ounce. So I get a dude with my tape. He's like, what's this? That's my tape. Uh, you know, I go on with music. You know, up there, they didn't go on with music. They just went up a hand clap. I said, no, man, I got I to gotta come in with Heavy D's in Effect with more Bounce to the Pumps. I need the crowd going. It's okay, sure. So he's standing there with the tape. <laughs> and then Sean Wayans gave me a great tip. He he walked up. He said, yo, Jamie, just go up and do your act, man. Just stop worrying about it. Don't, don't worry about the characters. Just do your act. Yo, Marlon, Marlon, come here. Tell Jamie. Just do your act. I was like, oh, really? Just do my act? Do my act like I do in the hood? Yeah, do your act like you're doing in the hood. I said, straight. Cool. So I go up. They don't play the music. <laughs> I'm waiting on them. I'm like, yo, you got my music? The dude's over there like I said, well, I'm supposed to have some music. <laughs> and I said, if if this shit goes wrong, you will actually see me working across the street at the gas station. <laughs> and I went into a character. Man, I was in there with Keenan and all of them, dog. And it just and so I did this little character. And then I went into my act. And uh, I got a standing ovation that night. And I remember seeing Jim Carrey and Keenan, Fly Girls, like, on their feet. Like, I said, oh, man, this is great. And that's how I got on the show. And during that show, <clears throat> I did this character called Wanda, yeah. where I said, all the good-looking ladies, clap your hands. And everybody said, I said, now all the ugly ladies, let me see you make some noise. It was quiet. I said, ain't that a business? And all the ugly ladies, I thought, hey, for real, though, he ain't talking about me. So we did this character. Keenan was like, I want you to do that character on the show, because I think that's where you'll, you'll, uh, you'll really uh, flourish. And when we did that, when I did that character, that's when everything sort of changed because I was trying to find my bearings on the show because we got on the show, but we were there for a trial basis. But when I did that character, it was like, it was like, it was like playing football and I was like the punt returner and I was the rookie and I ran it all the way back the first day. Uh, so nobody really knew who I was, but they knew that this character was, 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 was slamming. And so that sort of gave me like my stripes because uh, these guys were juggernauts. I watched, I watched Keenan. I said, Keenan, these jokes ain't funny. That the writers, that the, that the writers wrote. He says, get on your feet. Everybody get up. Let's do this. So he was like, there's never a joke that's not funny. You just got to work and find it. So he taught us the formula of finding the jokes and he was right every single time. And so, uh, like I said, to be there watching Jim Carrey, like create pet detective on set. He's writing Pet Detective as a word. I said, what's that you writing on? Hey, man, just, uh, you know, working on some stuff. You know, just got some stuff I'm working on. <laughs> so what is that? Man, it's a little thing called Pet Detective. I said, okay, sound funny. And was he developing it for the show at that no, time? He was or developing for, he was for much developing later? For his own shit. I got to make one phone call. No problem. All right, so we're, we're back. We took a little, took a little breather. But uh, what were we, catch us up. What were we just talking about? 
we were talking about how nowadays is that you don't get a chance to control your own narrative. Like we were talking about is there's two different people. Some people think that the tech world and the and social media and things on the internet is taking us to a great place. And then there's people who think that it's a horrible place. I had, I spoke with a, um, a young lady who had been burned bad, bad by the press, bad to where she lost her job. And what was interesting about her job was that what they were scolding her about was like me knowing her. I was like, you're not like that at all. She says, I can't. There's nothing I can do. Everybody thinks so. And they took something like they went through emails and through our personal emails and all of a sudden, whatever it was. But it was just like, you're not like that at all. So when I was on the phone talking with her, she was like, they're saying this and saying, ah, don't worry about it. You, you're cool. Like, you're not like that. I don't give a fuck. But I hadn't, I'm bowling. I'm like, I don't, I, don't even, I don't even need to read it. What could they possibly say? And when I looked, it was a national story. I went, what the fuck? She lost her job. Yeah. And so like, even like you'll do something where you think that it's either you're making fun or you're having fun. Yeah. But they'll take whatever it is that you say and make it what they wanted to say. Yeah. Or craft it where, like, if you do a joke, it's not about being a joke anymore. Jamie Foxx slams Caitlyn Jenner. Jamie Foxx trounces. Like, nah, I'm a comedian. We do do, but everything is something that they control, and and it, it it's tough because when I say Justin Bieber, what do you think? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Be honest. Hair that I'm jealous of. Yeah. But what do you think? But what do you think? Something about a kid who yeah. can't get it together. When right. I say Chris Brown, what do you think? It's something negative. When I say Jennifer Anderson, what do you think? What think do you think? of cover of Rolling Stone photograph, black think and Brad white. Pitt? <laughs> you think what? Cover of Rolling Stone magazine, black and white, naked, laying on a bed. Oh, but that's hilarious. <laughs> well, the average person <laughs> right. would think of not what they do. Right, but the impression, the headline, right, is. the subliminal image they yeah, got at the no, checkout it, counter. Yeah, it's, not, it's, it's the headline. If I say, if I say Jennifer Anderson, you automatically think, because nowadays they control. We don't control our own narrative to where it's like they, they talked about this thing with with uh, Quentin Tarantino, which I thought was sad because usually when you see a, 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 a story about black lives matter or anything black, it's usually the, the same black folks with the Kofi who's trying to be heard. And they're absolutely right. They're absolutely, it's so much wrong going on in black world. There's black on black crime. Then there's the, the, the divide that is because of social media is, uh, that is going on between the police officers and black folk police officers are on the whole are great folk. I know them. I, I shit. I know a gang of police officers, but the one or two that have been caught on social media makes it look, paint the picture that it's all of them. Now, granted we've known for a long time that blacks and police officers have always had a divide. We've done music. We've done movies about it. We've done books about it. It's just is the way it is. Now my take on it, is because I call it residue. It's slave residue, meaning that slavery for 300 years, you saw a person of, of color a certain way for 300 years. You've always saw him as a slave or the criminal or what something that you didn't value. So therefore, coming out of that, of course, there's going to be a divide when it comes to police and when it comes to blacks and when it comes to, that's always been that way. So take that off the table. Right. 
But in today's world of how do we bridge that gap? I've gone to Quantico in Virginia, saw what it what a police officer sees. I've talked to police officers that how can we bridge the gap? I've suggested that you go get a white police officer who you think might not like black folk. You know what I'm saying? Get that person to go into the hood and throw a picnic for a kid that's eight, nine, ten years old who's African American so that he can see another another side. Another side of the police officer because right now in social media or in media period, the stories that are the most salacious where it's the, the, the black person, the, the black cop being, ki- the black guy being killed by a cop. It's hard to erase those images. I'm a black man. When I see that, I have to react to that because I'm like, wow, you know, I, that, that troubles me. But then I have to sit down and think, okay, let me not think of the worst thing to say. But let me think, because I know how media tries to make things or heighten it. Right. How do I bring people together in spite of the headline? Because what people don't understand is that when you keep showing the images of the black guy being killed by the, by the cop, that does something to you. Oh, yeah. That's like whatever you believe in. If it, if it was a Jewish person, if it was a gay person, you cannot sit and not be bothered by that. At the same time, that cop, when he sees the other side of it, when they're saying all of you guys ain't shit, which that's not what's really being said. Most of the time it's with the individual cop. Now the cop sees the story. In his mind now, well, fuck, it. well, it's a problem now. So now imagine... That cop who's watching the story, driving on the street, that young black kid who's watching the story, walking on the street, what happens? Dynamite. Dynamite. Because we can't get it. We can't, we can't get anybody responsible on the media side to say, let's stop interviewing people and putting labels on them. Let's interview this man and this woman, but don't say that they're Democrat. Don't say that they're Republican. Don't say that they're a cop. Just have them talk. Because when you see, when you're watching TV and you see something that you agree with, you agree with them only and you can't hear the other person. That's the first thing. Two, like when I look at Quentin Tarantino, to demonize this guy. Can, and just because people might be listening to this for years, could you catch people up on well, let me catch, catch, the confusion? Quentin Tarantino, who is a purist when it comes to his opinions and his emotions even if even if you could go i could go to quentin tarantino and say something man i think you know as a black person and so and so and so and so. he say, well stop doing that stop hanging it just on black hanging on things that are substance first and then let it be ha- i mean so I've, I've heard this guy speak when there's no cameras i said wow you know what you make a lot of sense so quentin tarantino uh sees the black lives matter campaign sees the individual stories, 40 different people of individual stories where a police officer had killed the person who was unarmed. It touched him. The reason I thought that was impactful because you seldom see the white superstar go and stand with the black folk who just trying to be heard. Even high-end black guys don't go stand with the black folks that's trying to be heard. 
when it comes to like especially Hollywood because you know people in Hollywood are so scared oh, oh they won't see my movie or, oh, they won't go see my song if I stand if I stand up for anything of substance they so fucking scared so when I saw this dude do that I was like wow that's great but then the misinterpretation of his words where he says I'm standing here with the murdered Quentin Tarantino speaks that way he speaks if you've read any of his uh, movie or saw any of his movies, he speaks in those terms. He says, I stand with the murdered. When I see someone being murdered, I call it what it is. It's a murder. That's a murderer that killed this, this person. However, the story got spun was that Quentin Tarantino is a cop hater. He hates all cops and that all cops are murderers. And I was just like, oh, here we go again, man. Here's a person who's willing, and I'm going to speak like this, willing to put aside his white, cushy Hollywoodness. He could live on, in his, on his mountain and never give a shit about anything. He came out and said, man, I felt something. And now they paint it so bad. And now you got, you got the New York cop. So we got something for his ass. Now it's a beef. Now it's. That's not what we we trying to do, but you can't do anything right now because the media story, if it's not salacious, we don't want to report it. We we Just have bleed. to. You, you feel what I'm saying? No, I do, and it's it's. I mean, they, if it bleeds, it leads, right? So they put the salacious, yeah. the the visually viscerally impactful stuff up front because it gets the clicks yeah, or the purchases, the, clicks, the, the, the advertising, the the. Uh, the only, I suppose, flip side to that, and I have a very specific question for you that uh, from a fan I'd love to ask related to um, some, some of these race questions. But the good news is, if you can look at it in these terms, is that the necessity for new is so high that if you starve a story of oxygen, it'll often die on its own. Yeah. Because they can't regurgitate the same thing if there's no response. Exactly. And so exactly. You, you can let it kind of die on the vine. Uh, but... Um, we were talking about this before. I mean, I've had instances, <clears throat> and I won't bitch and moan too long because I think the question is more interesting than my bitching, but no, I've, I've had instances where these these formerly, I would say, outlets of record, you know, very prestigious outlets, yeah. uh, magazines, I'm not going to mention them by name because it's... I know uh, what you're talking but, about. But I was interviewed and profiled by a magazine at one point, very, very highbrow magazine. Yeah. Uh, there were six or seven misquotes or uh, erroneous facts in the piece, and I corrected those with the fact checker and went to press with no corrections. What do you do in that situation when those things then end up in Wikipedia? So you have to develop a sort of um, strategy, and uh, I mean, this will get even more interesting once we have you know, smart stadiums, once we have uh, facial recognition like you see on Facebook, once that's implemented across the board, it'll get very interesting. But I'm going to go down that rabbit hole, and instead... I'm going to uh, bring up a question that I'd love to get. Well, before you go into that, yes, here, here's the problem. Back in the day, if there was a misquote and you went to that entity and said, hey, you, you quoted me wrong. Oh, we'll release a statement saying that we misquoted you and it erases. The problem with today's world, once it's out there, you can't get it back. Yeah. You cannot change. You cannot change. Yeah. Because it's going to stay there. Yep. When you when I punch up your name, that's the first thing that's going to come up or the second thing that's coming up. You can't get rid of it. Yeah. And when you talk about the regurgitating or, the, or, the, uh, or, or just letting it die, you could let it die. But the problem is you have to at least 
once it starts, give another, hopefully that you can give another side of it that people may see a little bit. Sure. They don't want to see. It, what's crazy about our society right now, no one wants to see anybody reconcile. No one wants to see anybody come, come together or say that, like when I when I think about Quentin Tarantino, I spoke and said, I back you as a friend and keep keep speaking the truth and don't worry about the haters. Meaning, speak the truth from you, not whatever the comment was, right? But whatever you're saying in your truth, right. you say that because you ain't out there. You could be promoting your movie. Mm-hmm. You could be trying to make money. You actually trying to see how you could get how you could go. I know the way he thinks. I'm gonna go talk to them. If they are wrong in what they're saying, I'm gonna tell them. But if they are right, he says, I I'll be the one that can go to the cops and say that. And now look look at how it is. It it's so great. Go ahead, ask question. Oh no, I mean it's I, I think you're right. I think that people want gladiatorial games. And we don't have gladiatorial games, so they use the front page. Oh gladiatorial games. But but speaking of sort of conflict resolution, so this is this is a question from uh, fan TJ. My wife is pregnant. We're moving to a very non-diverse neighborhood. We are kind of worried on how it will go. She is black and I am white. What is some advice he can give to a young couple raising a child of color in today's world? I'll say this. I'll say the, I'll, I'll say this about America. Let's use America as an example. To me, America is the most incredible civilization that has ever been created. Hundreds of years from now, people will look on this, look at this place and marvel. There's the bitch and the complain aisle where everybody bitches and complains about every single thing. But the one thing about America that is incredible is the evolution of freedom. The change. When I talk about slavery that happened, it was 300 years of it. Look at the evolution. We come out of it. We have a black president. People are more welcoming now. Uh, we used to live in a world not too long ago where it was frowned upon, it was tough, it was this. What I would say to people like that, just live your life. Like, I lived my life in places where at, at times it was definitely racial misunderstanding, but I would talk to that person. I would make sure that person understood who I was as a person. I'm not going to compromise who I am as far as a black man but I'm also going to give you another, another version of it. Not the version that you necessarily see on television, the version that you see on the internet. I'm going to give you me. And most of the time we are alike in so many different, in so many uh, instances. So when he's saying move into that non-diverse place, it's different, man. Look at the, look at the, I hate to say this, but listen to the kids, bro. <laughs> but when you talk about the kids, the kids today I, I, I'm, I'm at the gym last night, 24-hour fitness. The kid is playing future. White kid. Where your ass is that? When I, white kid. When I first moved into my neighborhood years ago, and I felt like I made it. I'm in the white neighborhood now. I'm here. Oh, I'm so, I've made it. And I hear NWA blasting. <laughs> I look out there with these kids. I was 16 years old. So times are changing, man. And you have to start giving people the benefit of the doubt that they'll get it right. And for all those people that were here back in the old days and that are now 50 and 60 and 70 years old, that's dying out. 
the way of thinking is dying out. You may be looking at a, a situation where you may have the first female president. It's the evolution of, of, of it's the evolution of freedom. Think about how we treated women at one point. No voice, no rights, no nothing. I've heard people say, I'd rather have a black person tell me something to do than a woman any day. But now it's, it's a, so we are on the right path, man. Love who you want to love. Be where you want to be because we are evolving. Look at, look at, look at the steps that, that, that gay rights took in the past few years. Man, that, that was, that's huge when, you, when you're talking about people in the Bible Belt and, the, you know, how they felt. So if, if those things are now, like my, my daughter taught me, like when she was 13, she's 21 now, she was 13. And that was, this was, this was nine years ago. And it was talking about gay rights and things like that. And, and, and I asked her friends, I said, what do you think about it? She said, dad, we don't think about it. She said, that's, that's you guys. That's a good answer. She said, that's you guys. She said, that's old people. She said, that's why we're turned off from religion sometimes. That's why we're turned off from all of these different things because old people argue about where you're from, what you do, what you look like. We don't give a shit. And so thank God for the youth. Thank God for that couple because what they're doing is they're showing a new world. And she said, Dad, if someone was doing something somewhere that was straight, gay, black, white, or brown somewhere else, does it affect you at all? Does your air change? Does anything around you change because these people are living the way they want to live as long as they're not breaking the laws? Like, you know what? You make great points. She went on to my radio show and talked about it. So uh, we are in a new day. What we got to do, though, is we got to stop. I said, like, like I was telling Justine, I said, we got to make shirts to say, let's put, let's put media out of business. We got to quit allowing them to control the narrative. Those people, like with, with, with Quentin Tarantino or the Black Lives Matter or or people that speak up on something that is broken or that is wrong, you don't give them a chance by painting them in a in a bad situation. Are you going to do another comedy tour? Yeah, I'm going to do another comedy tour, but my, I'm going to start it organically, like uh, maybe 100 people, 200 people, start it organically and just sort of grow it. Uh, I got some great jokes. And that's the thing, like when, when, you're, when, you're, when you're a comedian, it's like you have to pray that the jokes will open up. So I got some great, like, jokes that people will get and understand. And then just the stuff that's been going on with me, you know, uh, you know, getting older, you know, uh, not realizing you the OG, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, the young, like the young hip-hop guy. What's up, OG? Damn, that's right. You know, <laughs> I mean, just, 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 it's just some funny stuff. It's, it's some funny stuff. that's, and, and that's what any comedian would tell you, that it's hard to be funny when there's nothing funny happening. But there's been so much funny shit happening. Uh, for like my mom who, you know, adopted and who, who gave me up for adoption in seven months and she comes back to live with me. And as she's living with me, she walks down the first day she's here. She walks down, uh, the steps and says, I want a phantom. I'm like, uh, bitch of the opera. What are you talking about? (laughs) She's talking about a phantom, uh, Rolls Royce. Right. And it was just funny that just certain things that the fact that everybody lives in my house, the fact that my mom, my dad lives here, my two sisters, my dad still dates. You know, and my mom is going on his side of the house when she when he has a date, you know, just assessing, like just being in a way like, mm, oh, hey, hi, I didn't know you had company, George. I mean, just and now they've turned they've turned into kids. 
So, you know, my dad would come to my room, but uh, 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 could you tell her not to come on my side of the house when I got a date? And I'm like, now, parents. So, you know, it's funny things are happening. Lots so of organic like, material. Yeah, so it's organic now. So we got funny shit. When you think of the word successful, who is the first person that comes to mind and why? On the bigger picture, because I witnessed this in 2008, to see President Obama become president to me 2008 not talking about after he became president because everyone will have their views on on that i know what it meant to me to see him stand up there put his hand on that bible and say you know become the president of the united states that is success in so many different ways and it also it jars you for every person that says, oh, man, just because I'm black, I'm so... maybe you can't use that all the time because this man now shows you. And whatever side you end up on, because it's not a political thing, to see that, and the reason that it means so much to me to see an African-American man, like, do that. Like, and literally when, uh, when, when, when he was, this was interesting, and this is how we connected. When he was 30 points down for the nomination, 30 points down. No one knew who he was. I get a call from Oprah Winfrey. Hi, Jamie Foxx. It's Oprah. Hi, Jamie. I was like, what's going on? There's this guy named Senator Obama. I think he's going to be the next president. Then I got a call from Norman Lear. Jamie, it's Norman Lear. The senator's on fire. So who is he? It's Senator Obama. But he's 30 points down. So no one knows. The reason they're calling me is because we have a radio show that was reaching everybody, especially the, the huge urban market. So I go on my show and I say, uh, I'm voting for this guy named Senator Obama because he's black. And I go to commercial. <laughs> when I go to commercial, my phone lines light up with all black people saying that we will not vote for this guy just because he's black. Don't treat us that way. So we ended up educating everybody about him. He gets the nomination and he goes on and he wins. And to me, it was all odds against him. And I thought that 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 type of success regardless of where you come from like i said whatever side you stand on to me that was something monumental when we talk about where this country has come from when you talk about the greatness of america evolving and evolving to that type of freedom and him taking advantage of being in america and becoming um uh, a president to me that's just success that that uh he redefined what it is what historical figure do you most identify with? Who do I identify with historically? Uh, when it comes to entertainment, Sammy Davis Jr. is a person that I look at all the time who I go on the internet and watch him play the drums or watch him sing or watch him dance or watch him uh, do jokes or watch him do a movie or watch him spin guns. To me, he was just the ultimate uh, in a, entertainer. He was a yeah, full stack entertainer, as one engineer said. That's what, they, that's what he called you. Yeah, oh, Meaning man. he kind of he had all the tools in the toolkit. Oh, man, that's great. And then there's there's other sides of me, too. So, like, the, the sports side, like, I was a Magic Johnson. Like, you know, the person who was, who loved being competitive but also wanted to get everybody else involved and, you know, the way he played basketball. When it comes to social consciousness. May I interject for a second? Yeah. So... This might seem like a funny question, but do you feel like you identify more with Magic Johnson than Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? Yeah, 
The reason I feel more than Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is because Magic smiled and it was fun. He was happy. You know, not to say that Kareem wasn't, but Kareem was more serious guy. You know, Very serious. If you ever met him, he's completely serious. Serious. You know? I'm more the fun dude. Let's have a good time. And, you know, when it comes to social consciousness and social issues, that's where I, I, I draw from a lot of different people. I think going, I, I think watching Martin Luther King and going to Atlanta and seeing what he did and how he did when he did it. When I look at the bravery of him, it's beyond. Because I, I look at social issues today, how we're so afraid to step out on anything. Like, oh, oh my, my cars and my, my wealth and my money. Oh, I, and, and not to say that I've thought this way all my life. Like, literally, like, it just happened not too long ago where I was like, we got we got to step up more more socially we got to be on social con even if it even if some of the people say oh fuck it i ain't going to your to your movie it's like, okay fine you weren't going to go anyway but we had to step up a little bit more social social wise and when i went to see where martin luther king came from and what he did and how his house was he actually came from middle class big nice house but it's right across the street from poor, from poverty and it sort of taught him how to deal with other cultures taught him how to deal with other uh, uh, financial groups. He says, I don't want to see people hurting. He says, I want everybody, you know? So I, I think like that. I've always thought like, uh, even when we talked about earlier, the Jews and the Palestinians in the, uh, in the student center, you know, the rest of the story was I befriended both of them and we all became friends because I call myself spackle, which is the stuff that goes in between the bricks. Between the cracks. Yeah. I'm, I'm spackle. I get along with all religions, get along with all people and try to bring them all together. And so that was the, so when I think about it socially, it is the Martin Luther King thing, because I think sometimes we overlook that the world is big enough for all of us to live on. It's big enough for all of us to, to, to get along. And, uh, sometimes I, I question why is it so tough to get along? You know, which is what Martin Luther King questions. I just don't, I don't get it. And I, and I won't stand by. So, a little, and like I said, I've only thought about like that, you know, here in the past few years after watching Harry Belafonte go on stage before I was supposed to get a Lifetime Achievement Award. And he goes on and says something so prolific. He says, uh, they were talking about violence, and he said, the, the violence that's happening in America is mostly black violence, and you black entertainers sit here mute. And we laid all of this groundwork down for you guys, and you guys are disrespected and not picking up. So, you know, uh, that's the one reason I said I think more socially. I mentioned Kareem Abdul-Jabbar because I saw, just by chance, a fantastic documentary uh, called Minority of One. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's so good. Yeah. And it detailed, in particular, and I'm not, I'm not at all well-versed with basketball, so it was also a glimpse into that world for yeah. me, mm -hmm. but his relationship with Magic Johnson, yeah. which was fascinating. Yeah. Do you have any particular favorite documentaries or movies that you just feel are must-watches for human beings? I know it's a big question. That's, that's yeah, why. But I think documentaries on cultures are important. If you get a chance to see a doc, any documentary about Jews and what they went through, watch it. Any documentary, documentary about Palestinians and what they've gone through, watch it. Blacks and what they've gone through, watch it. Women and what they've gone through, watch it. The reason that I say it is because if we're talking about the human aspect of it, like I didn't get it until I watched, it was actually the pianist. Yeah. And I just went, shit. I didn't know it was like that. 
You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I didn't know that. And so, you know, and then when I listen to some of my friends who, like, you know, live in the Middle East and they're going through those things, I said, shit, I didn't know it was like that. So I think anytime you get to watch, get a chance to watch people and where they come from or culture and what they went through, uh, you can even look at it, 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 uh, whites breaking away from, the, I mean, the 13 colonies breaking away from, from England. You go, oh, shit, I didn't know you went through that. So it's like when you do that, you 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 come away with a sense of, okay, I get you now. Right, it helps build your compassion. I, yeah, it helps build your compassion because you, you you only live in your own world, you know what I'm saying? And unless you get a chance to see what it is, uh, a lot of times your views will be will be narrow, and just watching documentaries like that to to open up your views are just amazing. When you look at when you look at the story of of uh, like I said, the story of slavery. There was a book that I just showed these young guys called "Without Sanctuary." Without Sanctuary, where it's a book where a guy, a photographer, went around the South during the times of slavery and documented lynchings. Oof. And he would document the lynching and take and make postcards because at that time, see, we go oof, but at that time it was commonplace. Yeah, it was a party, so people would get their food. That's where they got picnic from. They would get their food, drinks or whatever, and they'd go down and watch the lynching. And so there was a postcard that said, "Here's the lynching of nigger Charlie. Uh, hope you like it. Hope everything is well." So that was something that was mind blowing because it was commonplace. You know, so um, when you get it, like I said, when you get a chance to see cultures and history, you understand what what's going on today. And this is the last little factoid. If you get a chance, pull up the Harrison Act. The Harrison Act was an act about taking drugs off the street and making them illegal because it, uh, at, at the time in our culture, we were able to, you know, use whatever drugs that was out there was available. But the government sort of didn't know how to get it off the street. So they ran a story. Black man gets high on cocaine and fights cops. And people's like, so we got to get rid of drugs. People are like, fuck that. Get rid of our drugs. Get bigger guns. Give cops more jurisdiction. Finally, they run a story. Black man gets high on cocaine, rapes and kills Caucasian woman. That's when the Harrison Act, because, well, we don't want that. But because of that Harrison Act with the jurisdiction of a cop, that plays into a little bit of what we're dealing with today hmm. because it was sort of set that way at a time where it was commonplace to see slaves. It was commonplace to see blacks as second or third class citizens. So, and it's not to incite anything. It's not to make you feel anything angry. It's just a, it's just a peering into someone's Genesis to see where we are today so that you can understand to or try to have the compassion for all of all of us who live here in this country because like i said it's it's the best in the world and beyond i remember a friend mentioned to me i was watching planet earth and he said there's a companion of some type which uh i really want to see called i think it's humans of earth and it actually profiles different civilizations different cultures around the world it shows you have humans have adapted you know mongolians using falcons for hunting and all of this and whatnot but the um I, yeah i totally agree with you i think that you know if a culture is a set of beliefs and behaviors you have to in a way be taken on that sensory experience yeah. to develop the compassion yeah. you don't get it through text alone yeah. necessarily uh if you could have a billboard anywhere uh what would it say uh, 
Man. It would constantly change. It would be those new Ooh, billboards. that's a sneaky answer. I like it. It would, ha- it would be the bo- billboard chant. <laughs> Ball out, dog. Have a great time. Go to church. Love somebody. Teach somebody. Get angry a little bit. It would just change, you know, because, you know, these guys know me. I'm all about having, and at the end of the last one, be have as much fun as you can. Because in a blink of an eye, we'll all be gone. A hundred years compared to infinity is nothing. I talk to my sister all the time. Why? She'd be like, oh, what's wrong? I said, girl, you better get, you better start having some fun. We're going to be gone in a minute. You're going to look back and say, like, shit, I should have been laughing. And now I'm dead. <laughs> so, yeah, my billboard would change constantly because I, I think we all change. And so, you said get angry a little bit. And, yeah. it's, it, and I remember I was given this advice by a guy named Poe Bronson, a writer, yeah. many, many years ago. I uh, asked him at an event. I was sitting in the crowd. And I said, what do you do when you get writer's block? And he said, I write about what makes me angry. Yeah. And uh, if, you ta- if you were teaching a ninth grade class, yeah. mixed race, mixed gender, yeah. What would you what would you teach that class about? Like what would what would you teach? What what do you think the most important things, skills or otherwise that you could teach ninth graders might be? Well, like I said, it would have to be different tiered. Yeah. If it's a ninth grader of today, I would teach him as much as you can interact with actual humans. Uh, you know, the toughest thing in the world is like looking at my daughter and we're in Paris and they're Gen- generation thumbs. Yeah, they're on their they're on their they're on their cell phones. So I said, as much as you can interact with people because people, it's the best interaction because there's all types and <clears throat> there's discretion when it comes to people. Like there's no discretion when it comes to thumbs and what you can say on the internet. And that's why you get drugged down by it because it doesn't take anything. If there, if it's an anonymous person and they say you're ugly and you're this and you're that and you're this, there's no discretion there. So they can sort of get the venom off. I said, when you're, if we're, if we're in a surrounding, I may feel something about something, but I won't say it because I, I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. I, I don't want to have them hurt my feelings. So that's the one thing, interact with people. The second thing is interact with people from all over the world because you become narrow when you're just all about my block and just being about your block in today's world is going to hurt us because people don't understand global. We don't understand global market. We don't understand global things that how does something in the Middle East affect me in North Dakota Mm -hmm. because of the way we're set up like this. So it's like you have to get the education. I would bypass. Well, no, I wouldn't bypass it. Get the education of people all the world. And then the last, well, last couple of things would be history. Know your history. Know why we're, why we're here, why this, especially when it comes to, to, to rules and legislation and things like that. Know why, uh, why we vote, why we don't vote. Uh, if you think about it, this wonderful country runs on just like a human brain. We only use a little bit of it. When it comes to the voting market, you got to vote, get out there and be active in that. A lot of times we just, Hey man, whoever's the president is the president, whoever's this way. So, so that, and then, uh, um, the last part that I would teach is last two things, hustle, teach your hustle. Your hustle muscle is, but hustle muscle is the most important thing. Um, uh, when you hustle and, and you go get it, 
a lot of times that alleviates your problems. Mm-hmm. When you don't hustle or you leave it to chance, when you leave things to chance and you didn't give it all that day, now you start to argue or wonder about things. Bills, fuck, I got to get that done. Oh, my relationship is how did it? But if you hustle, for one, it's going to take up a lot of, more of your time. So you don't have time to to concentrate on just the worrying. The worrying. If I put the work in, I got my check. I put it in there. And your check can be doesn't have to be monetary. It could be anything. It could be I put the work in at the charity and this happened because of the charity. But whatever it is, put that hard work in and now you could see things coming to fruition and that takes not, 70% of your worrying away mm-hmm. because you did give it your all. And then uh, the last part of it is re- reflect. Sit still for a minute because when you're t- working, 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 I got this, I got this, that, that. That will strain you as well. So you got to be able to decompress. You just got to be able to chill, whatever it is that you chill with. If it's your homies, your friends, whatever, like, take time out to be like, you know what? I, I, if, if, if it's out of my hands, it's out of my hands. I'll get a better crack at it tomorrow. Colin Powell says something incredible. He said, I always feel like in the morning, I got a brand new chance. And I'm paraphrasing. In the morning, he said, I, I love getting in the mor- to the morning because it's a new opportunity. But really take that time for yourself. You know, relax, chill, whatever it is that you believe in. If it's God, Buddha, Allah, Hindu, all of them, whatever it is to get you on, on, that, on that okay you know, uh, I did what I was supposed to do. Let me relax now. And then tomorrow or the next day, get another another start. What is, uh, what does the first 60 minutes of your day look like? Or what, do you have any morning routines that are important to you? Morning routines? I, I wake up. I, uh, I text the people that I dig and love. What, uh, what do you say? I just send them encouraging. Like, you know, there's a few, you know, people that just you know really mean a lot to me want to let them know i'm thinking about them the whole nine and then uh uh it varies man sometimes i'll be like okay I, I put some work in so i put in eight days so maybe these two days i could chill uh get a little i do the uh just on the physical part i get my uh i get my 50 pull-ups in <laughs> 100 sit-ups you know maybe 100 uh maybe 100 crunches and it's easy I used to not be able to do it. My boy Tyron Turner. How many sets for the 50 pull-ups? For the 50? So I do 15 first, 15 pull-ups. This is what it is. I do 15 pull-ups, 50 push-ups, 100 sit-ups. Then I go back and I do 15 different oh, chin. grip. Yeah. So that'll get me to 30. Another 50 push-ups. That gets me to 100 push-ups. I'm done with the push-ups. And then I do 10 and 10 back to the to the first grip mm-hmm. and you don't have to do it every single day. You can do it every other day. Uh, and then what you notice is the pull-up bar and Tyron kept telling me this. Well, we, I got a homie, Tyron, he played Kane in Minnesota society. And he, I kept wondering how is he always in shape? He says, man, I'm trying to tell you the pull-up bar is the everything. So, uh, so that, and then, uh, um, and then just, you know, make the calls on what I need to get done and make sure I'm, you know, in the right, you know, position and Do you drink coffee. Get the kid. I don't drink coffee. I don't drink coffee. Is have you? I have you to never? Stop, had, I had oh, to, you stopped. I had to stop having stimulants. That's, that's there was you, some uh, you there and was, me. earlier in my career. I was, 
I was all about the stimulus. <laughs> <laughs> so at a certain point, I had to ixnay on the yeah, caffeine k. Yeah, yeah, I've been I've been cutting that out as well. Yeah, it's not it. good for me. People are like, oh, "Aren't you worried about depressants, alcohol?" I'm like, "No, no, no, no. Stimulants. That's what I need to worry." Yeah, be because because what I tell people all the time to drink coffee after a while, you 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 keep you keep hitting that same muscle, you know, that yeah. in in your brain to where you. I I know people right now who could drink four cups of coffee and go to sleep. Yeah, I used to be that person. Yeah, and so it's like my my and one of my boys loves uh uh, uh what is the Red Bull? Red Bull. And then he won't understand why some days he'll just be like this. Yeah. So I had to stop, and it was tough because I had to have coffee every day, and I drank like double espressos. You know, I was like I had to have the up. Yeah. But now I know how to go get it inside of my. You know, I know how to go get it inside. Last last question here is um, I'm going to ask what advice you would give to yourself. Three different ages, 20, 30, and 40. Um, so what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Man, put the condom on. <laughs> Shit. Stop playing around. <laughs> Important advice. <laughs> You're 20, man. Put that on, buddy. And not the fishnet one either. Put the real one on. Okay. Uh, anything else for 20 or should we move to 30? 20, 20s. I had my daughter at 26. So the advice I would give me was like, calm down. You know, it, it was like, calm down and, and just, you know, make sure you're paying attention to your daughter and to the daughter's mom. 20s was tough because I just got to L.A. I was just, you know, man, the whole world was opening up. So I'm like, man, I'm you know, I'm trying to do all of it. And while I was like, calm down. And, and luckily, it was 26, so moving into 30, I was uh, on my way to calming, if that makes sense. It does make sense. So then you hit 30. 30. What advice would you give your 30-year-old self? Uh, it's going to go fast. <laughs> In what way? It's going to go fast. The time is going to go fast. So just make sure that you uh, you start now planning for your future and not only is it going to go fast but don't spend all your money don't buy the 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 jacket that's twelve thousand dollars you know relax you know just just you relax it because it, it's good and, and 40 is going to come so fast and you don't think that it is right. but it's going to come so fast and would you say that because you would want your 30 year old self to pay attention to the present moment or do long-term no, thinking you or do both? long term when you're 30, you got a kid, and you're in my business, and in any business, all businesses are gonna, especially when when you when when you make my business is about me though, so I have to be careful in my decisions socially, uh, and and plan for the future. It's not gonna be. I remember uh, uh, doing my television show, and it went five years went fast, and I would tell the people on my television show, it's gonna go fast, man. And if you finish at 35, but you live till 70, you know, so you have to really think about the future. A long game. Yeah. And then 40, before zero. Wow. 40. There, there are going to be tough decisions that you have to make when it comes to business. Because in your 40, when you're 40, in my business, the window is closing on certain things. 
So you have to be able to open those windows to other things. And some of the people that you've gone to, to, to battle with till you're 40 may not be the ones that you will battle and do business with towards 50. And take a little bit of your uh, personal feelings out of it because I'm very personal. Uh, meaning like I would stay with someone even if I feel that they're not up to par business-wise, but, you know, we have history. Take a little bit of the personal out of it. Still remain friends if you can with that person because now it's really pending. Like 50 about to be here. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, you know, and uh, I would tell my 40-year-old self, grow up in your mind but not in your body necessarily. Mm meaning stay young in your body, but certain parts of your life, you have to grow up and be, be grown about things because now you got another kid, your other child is, you know, 20, she's 21 now, which is just, you know, this past year. So, but she was, you know, 13, 14 if, if when I was 40, but now you got to start living. Uh, you would always live your life a hundred percent for you. But now that you have your kids and they're a certain age, it's got to be 30 to 40 percent you, 60 to 7 percent what you're going to leave for them and how you're going to leave them. Because, like I said, it's it's flying. And that's it. Jamie, so much fun. I really appreciate taking the time. And uh, where can people find what you're up to, find you online, learn? You can find me at I am Jamie Fox. On my Periscope, am I right? Am I saying this right? You know, I got these young cats telling me what to and do. And then I'm Jamie Fox on Twitter also. I'm Jamie Fox on Twitter. And, and I'm doing better on Twitter. I'm trying to do better. And <laughs> on Twitter, you and, know, uh, the old fella trying to. The latest album? The latest album is called Hollywood Story of a Dozen Roses. It's out. I don't care how you get it. You can download it, bootleg it, steal it from a friend. I don't care. I just want you to, I just want you to hear the music. The song that's out right now is uh, I'm Supposed to Be in Love by Now. I'm supposed to be in love by now It's been so long for me I don't know how Been drowning in the sea of broken vows But I'm supposed to be in love by now I've been chasing my dream, now I'm chasing you Running hard but my legs feel weak I done played every part, I done played a fool Write the movie, I'll be your lead I'm supposed to be in love by now Well girl, you stole my heart, I take a bow in love by now So make sure you get that uh, <laughs> In love by now is out It's a song that my daughter made me She sort of made me do She's like listen Stop with the club stuff Stop with And that's my, my oldest daughter It's like funny She said Stop with the club joints Stop You're trying to be too young uh, Like even She'd even Like I had on some shoes one day That she thought was just I had too young of a shoe. <laughs> She's like, Dad, what is that on your feet? I said, what you did? They're the new style, baby. <laughs> they the, the Giuseppe's. You know, it's the, the new style. I had a zipper on and a buckle and my name engraved. And she was like, stop it. She said, Dad, you have old feet. 
I said, what does it mean? You have old feet, like you have, you have feet for marching, like a civil rights. You have a civil rights feet. <laughs> so, uh, but she said, do a song that we know that is from you. And, and it's true. She says, I'm supposed to be in love by now. And so, uh, so that and uh, jumping out of the window. Uh, and uh, we just shot the In Love By Now video with George Lopez is the priest. I get stood up at the altar. George Lopez is the priest, Nicole Scherzinger, uh, and we all know her from the Pussycat Dolls, but also her solo career and, and everything. She plays my love interest, which is great because she's a good friend. And so we were able to like really get into some like, uh, you know, they don't do old school videos anymore. Like this actually has a bit of a story. My man Tank is in it. And then all of my friends, my daughter's in it. My little daughter's in it. And uh, my mom and dad is in it. And, you know, so it's, uh, it's kind of cool. I was um, jamming to Babies in Love. Yeah. That's the type of music I listen yeah. to this to before I'm, when I'm headed somewhere to, to write, sit down, do some creative work. Yeah, man. Babies in Love. Solid. Babies on top. I think Justin Bieber was supposed to do that song first. And we were lucky enough to get it. But uh, Babies in Love, Kid Inc. is on there. So, you know, got some good stuff going. And then uh, later on, uh, Sleepless Nights will be out at some point. And then uh, we'll start work on the uh, Mike Tyson uh, bio. And uh, and that's it. And then the, the stand-up comedy is coming because, like I said, I got a lot of stuff that, you know, I got to get off uh, get off my chest. And okay. That's it. Since you brought up Mike, what, what would Mike say if he were here right now? Well, I'm going to say it like this because— now that I'm about to do the, the movie, to do the Mike Tyson impersonation would be a little disservice. What I would say is, is that I met Mike when I was 21 years old. I went on stage and I was doing my joke and I was getting my Mike Tyson joke and I went into it and no one laughed because Mike was in the audience. <laughs> a guy was in the audience with Mike and said, yo, Mike is in here, motherfucker. I was like, oh, man. The black girls in the front was like, what you going to do, Jamie? You going to tell your jokes? You scared of Mike Tyson? This is when Mike Tyson was knocking people out for nothing. I did, And then the guy yells out, Mike said, do the joke. And that shit better be funny. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> So I do the joke. It's a standing ovation. I come off stage and Mike goes, there he is. I want to talk to you. You're so funny. Come, come hang out with me. You're funny, motherfucker. Grab the, come on, get in the car with me. And we take off. And I started hanging out with Mike Tyson at 21 years old. It was the most incredible thing in the world. Mike was bigger than Michael Jackson at that time. He was biggest. just, he was the biggest person, biggest star in the world. Mike would be in a club, see a girl and say, hi, how are you? Like BMWs? They're like, huh? Do you like BMWs? You like cars? Yeah. He would go open up the BMW dealership. They buy, he'll buy a car for a girl. That's how dope he was. And then all of his boys would go to all the different cities and pick up the cars that he bought for girls and say, yo, come on, get the keys back. You know, he's playing. So it was great to see, it was great to see him during that time. Then it was tough to see him when he went through what he went through. And then when we finally decided to do this movie, this is the Mike Tyson that I think people really be able to grasp is that when we show Mike Tyson older and I called Mike and I said, Mike, how are you? I'll pray this to Allah, my brother. I'm happy. How are you? I said, I'm good, Mike. You know, what's up? What's going on? I'm just happy. I'm happy because I don't have any money anymore. So I'm happy. It's like, Mike, what does that mean? He was like, no, it's just all the vultures that were around me the whole time. It was always after my money, so I don't have any money, so nobody wants anything from me, so I'm just so happy. And if you notice, his speaking voice, like what I told you with Bill Cosby, is completely different from when he's on stage, when he's getting ready to fight. So he was like, I'm just so happy. And I could tell, I said, Mike, that's the person we need to tell. 
That's the story. We always see the person who rises to the mountaintop, but we don't see the other side of the mountain and all the jagged edges and all the things and 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 you're about to slip off of that mountain. So uh, Terry Winter, who wrote, you know, uh, Wolf of Wall Street, uh, Boardwalk Empire, and uh, Martin Scorsese, who's going to direct it, who hasn't directed a film about boxing since Raging Bull. So fingers crossed if it all goes together, we'll be able to see Mike Tyson in a different way and we'll be able to transform uh, to where I want to be so good that it's Mike Tyson that I look so much like him that when I walk into his house, his kids would acknowledge me as a father. Um, and then I want to be able to sit back and reflect. And here's what I'm trying to do with, with a career is establish characters. In Living Color, it was Wanda. Hey, for real though, I'll rock your world. Then... It was Willie Beeman any given Sunday. My name is Willie. Willie Beeman. I keep the ladies screaming. Then it's Ray Charles. Oh, no, it's uh, Bundini Brown from Ali. Muhammad Ali is a prophet. How you going to be Godson? Soon as you come out the garage, you be number two. So Bundini Brown. And then it's, eh, yeah. well, I got a woman way over town. It's good to me. Then it's Ray Charles. And then it's a uh, jingle. You know they love him very well Django so the Django experience you know working with Quentin Tarantino which was mind blowing uh, to be able to go in and read for that and I didn't know about that part I thought Will Smith was going to do it I was like woo Will Smith and Quentin Tarantino this is going to be incredible it didn't work out that way I meet with uh, Quentin Tarantino I told him I understand the script and I said not only that I have my own horse and so I ended up riding my own horse in uh in Django and I knew that that was going to be another character that's going to change the game and uh, uh, so they'll look at that so they'll say Django and then hopefully if everything goes right Mike Tyson will sit with those characters so that you'll be able to after a while look at a, at a, at a career where you transformed into a character people know it and were moved by it and and hopefully uh, um if it all works out, it'll it'll be a great it'll be a great opportunity to look back and see like wow man look at the things that you were able to do, uh, in America. Well, it's an incredible canon already, and um, my brother gave me Mike Tyson's autobiography for wow. Christmas last year, and yeah. I sat down and I read it because when I was a kid. I would watch on the grainy VHS yeah. Mike Tyson's greatest hits yeah, over and man. over and oh, over. Oh. And you'd see his reception in Japan. He was the biggest star he on the face of the planet. Place planet but you read the autobiography and there are layers upon layers. So a lot. A, lot. And a guy who just wanted to be in love, just wanted to, just, 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 you know, it was more simple than we thought it would. Yeah. And uh, I can't wait to see it. I hope it comes together. I hope so. Jamie, you are the Bruh. consummate performer oh, and entertainer so please keep creating oh, man. this thank has you. been uh such a such a gift uh thank you for your time thank you buddy and yeah. uh for everybody listening you can find all the show notes links to everything at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast uh you can just search my name and jamie's it'll probably pop right up and as always thank you so much for listening this episode is brought to you by 99designs when your business needs a logo website business card thumbnail or any other design 
I recommend checking out 99designs. I use them myself. I've used them for many years. I use them to create book cover prototypes for The 4-Hour Body, which went on to become a number one New York Times bestseller. I've also used them for banner ads, illustrations, and much more. With 99designs, you get a variety of original designs from designers around the world, give your feedback, and then pick your favorite. Your happiness is guaranteed. So check out some of my competitions and designs and some of your competitions and designs from fellow Tim Ferriss Show listeners at 99designs.com forward slash Tim. And right now, you can get a free $99 upgrade on your first design. So check it out, 99designs.com forward slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by Trunk Club. You know I've used them, and here's why. Especially in the holiday season, last-minute gifts, crowded airports, the family, you have enough crap to worry about during the holidays without having to think about mixing and matching, picking out, buying clothing. Trunk Club has your back. Here's how it works. Trunk Club takes the hassle out of shopping by shipping you a trunk of clothes that fit perfectly, make you look amazing, and in this case, they would include custom-picked fall and winter styles. So go to trunkclub.com forward slash Tim. You answer a couple of simple questions about your style, preferences, and size, and you're assigned an expert stylist. They curate clothing from top premium brands, and you approve of what you like. All this is free. And just like that, a trunk arrives on your doorstep filled with hand-picked clothing that are perfect for you. Try them on, keep what you like, easily return what you don't in their prepaid trunk. And this is not a subscription service. Super important because I don't buy clothing that often, but I do it every once in a while and I've used Trunk Club this way. You only pay for the clothes you keep from your trunk. No hidden charges, just great clothes. It's the busiest, most hectic time of the year, so save your brain cells. You can still look fantastic without spending a lot of time on trying to do that. Get started today and Trunk Club will style you for free, plus free shipping both ways. You only pay for the clothing that you keep. So check it out, trunkclub.com forward slash Tim. Again, that's trunkclub.com forward slash Tim.